The GameCube is Cool podcast is a recorded and produced show from Toronto, Canada. If you want to support the show, you can go to patreon.com forward slash the GameCube is Cool to find our $1 and $5 a month tiers. Special thank you to our Patreon supporters at the $5 level. I Rebel, Dean Donian, Jed Winters, Joey Sirico, Resident Evil Collector on Instagram, Link, Marty Thompson, Double Ugly, Bendito, Benito, AJ Olson 11, Cube Dude, Bogus Lotus, Doomerzan782, and Jude Hanlon. The GameCube, GameCube was cool. Hosted by Mike Lane and Neil Gilbert. Mike, the study confirmed that the average person swallows three gizmondos in their lifetime while they sleep. That's three too many, Neil, but oh, we're live. Oh, well, Mike, thank you so much for joining me today. Before we get started, I just want to give a real quick shout out. I took the bus to and from work today, which I don't do too often, but you know, sometimes you got to share the car and uh, did that today. And I'm so glad that I did because I had this very slight interaction with with another human being. So small. This woman probably didn't even notice I was there, but... uh, there was a woman sitting on the bus with me and you know, when you're on a bus, there's always, you know, there's always that person, like someone coughing too much or somebody listening to their music too loud and all, all the above basically were happening on this was happening on the bus today. Mm -hmm. Uh, so this one person was coughing quite a bit and these days, not a good look. This woman was just staring them down. And I was like, I appreciate that. Cause like, I don't look at people on the bus. I don't make eye contact. This woman had no shame and it was just staring at this person coughing. I got, it was great. I, like prolonged eye contact like that is, uh, oh. is a, such a, it's, it hurts more than a knife. It's like, oh. <laughs> it's so yeah. uncomfortable. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. And it's like, I don't know if the person that was coughing noticed she was staring. Like, I want to get to that age where I can just do that and no one noticed me. And then a few minutes later, somebody walked onto the bus and, I don't know who does this, but no headphones, music playing through Classic. their phone. Classic, yeah, yeah. What is that? Who I, who ta- who raised you to do that? Yeah, I, that one's always so weird to me when it's just like full. Like we were at a wedding actually the other day, and there mm. was a, a couple behind us where like the guy's phone was just playing music for like a good five what? minutes of the ceremony, and he couldn't figure out how to like. Well, I, at first he didn't know what? he had it playing. And it was like relatively loud. <laughs> and and then and then he was like he spent like a good five minutes after that trying to turn it off because his wow. wife and him were I guess arguing just like, oh, it's, it's it, like, I don't know how to do it. Then he was like turning it louder. <laughs> I don't know what was going on. People, people are crazy. Now, clearly, these people just need to have some gizmondos when they're playing when they're at a wedding. Clearly, clear. I can't believe that, that happened at the ceremony, too, of all yeah, things. But yeah. <laughs> anyway, sh- shout out to the woman on the bus that I saw today, just judging people as she was living her life. Can't wait to get to that point. But uh, yeah, I wonder if she's listening to this right now. I think she is. I'd like to think that she's a big uh, Baton Kaidos uh, fan. And, you know, she's, she's <laughs> dabbled in the Tales series. I'd also like to give a shout out today to uh, Austin Eruption, who's a great YouTuber I follow. Uh, and he just made a video literally a couple days ago called Forgotten and Weird Nintendo Games. Uh, I don't often shout out other channels. How, how dare you veer credit outside this room? But uh, <laughs> but I, I got to give him some credit because I was like, ooh, like this is what we do. <laughs> so uh, Teddy talks about a lot of weird uh, games, uh, weird to the general community, not weird to us. Of course, he talks about Custom Robo, Chibi Robo, mm. Cubivore, Lost Kingdoms. 
Italian Wars, and uh, Baton Kaitos as well. So um, if you want to learn more about uh, GameCube-related and weird games, uh, go check out that video. It's pretty cool. Uh, that was a good thing I watched this week, Neil. A bad thing I watched this week was The Witches, the 2020 version. Yeah, you mentioned last week when we were talking about uh, Hocus Pocus and Friday the 13th, uh, you mentioned uh, watching The Witches. I don't even know if I've heard of this movie. That's not The Witch. That was like a 2019 or 2018 movie. What's The Witches about? Well, The Witches is the classic 1990 movie by Roald Dahl. Uh, I don't know if you remember oh, that, Neil, where the, yeah. the witches are all bald. Uh, mm-hmm. And everything. There's that famous scene in like the big hall where the kid turns into a mouse, um, <laughs> and uh, and it's a great book. I loved The Witches growing up, and uh, I re- kind of remembered the 1990 movie, and I and it's with Angelica Huston, who's of course uh, uh, what's her name, uh, uh, Morticia, in oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, in Adam's family. Yeah, Adam's family, and yep. so she does a great job as the Grand Witch. Uh, uh, it's perfect, perfect role for her. And it's a uh, it's a solid movie. You know, it's definitely campy in some aspects, but I, sure. I still enjoyed it. Uh, the ending uh, wasn't uh, it was kind of corny, but it was whatever. This one, uh, I heard that they were remaking it, and Anne Hathaway was going to play the the Grand Witch, and okay. uh, I, you know, I had some. I'm like, okay, she's a good actress, and uh, mm-hmm. Octavia Spencer's in it. It's mm-hmm. written by Robert Zemeckis of. Uh, Back to the Future fame and uh, Polar Express. We talked about him uh, <laughs> a long time ago uh, for the Christmas episode. But mm-hmm. uh, and it's also written by uh, Guillermo del Toro. So like uh, all star crew and cast on this. Oh my god, it's so bad. It, oh no! It starts off. So first of all, <laughs> it starts off with Chris Rock. He's the narrator. <laughs> Oh what? Yeah, so you're, you're, I'm just immediately taken out because it's yeah. it's it, it just it sounds exactly like uh, everybody hates Chris. Uh, of yeah, course, or the the, uh, the zebra from Madagascar. <laughs> sure, I, yeah, that's <laughs> that was the other one I was thinking of. But like everybody hates Chris, he narrates it, right? So yeah, it's like yeah, yeah. even more, and it's about you know this young kid and and everything. So I'm like, this is literally everybody hates Chris, like to the sequel. <laughs> but um, uh, it. it 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 kind of it veers off into all these different directions. The uh, the the CGI is horrid because the witches the original one in 1990 mm. that's a Jim Henson production, uh, oh. and of course you know fantastic. It's practical effects, so sure. a little it's aged a little bit, but it's still really scary for a kid. Mm. This was just strange, and the animals were all CGI'd, which mm. made it way worse the mice because they all turn into mice that's kind of the 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 thing right mm-hmm. um and the mice like they were always standing on their hind legs and they were almost anthropomorphic and it's oh. just like no this is not this is way more disturbing <laughs> than just like uh a, an animatronic mouse which they basically had before which was really good yeah. so uh this is another one of those movies the grinch being an, another one for by illumination that came out a couple years ago that just like completely crushed mm. my childhood while watching it, and uh, I do sucks. not recommend it. That's too bad. That's too bad, man. I'm sorry to hear that you had to uh, end your Halloween movie marathon on a bit of a dud. Yeah, I really miss Henson Studios movies. I loved when when their puppets popped up on in movies. I know yeah. that they still sometimes do here and there. What movie was it earlier this year? I was watching, and I thought Henson's. Oh, it was the uh, there's an, the opening scene for Thor: Love and Thunder. 
Yeah. There are these little there are these little alien things that they fight against. And for a second, I thought they might have been Henson Studios because Henson's owned by Disney now. Yeah. So I was like, well, that's kind of cool that they put those guys in on on a Thor movie. But I don't think they were credited, so it might have just been CG. But for a second, there's some moments <laughs> when I'm watching a movie where it's like, oh, this looks like Henson Studios. And sometimes it is. Sometimes it isn't. I just love practical effects. That's too bad that they went full CG in the 2020 version. Yeah. Sounds like a good cast, though. It's just a missed opportunity, unfortunately. But yeah, and can't imagine had that a the... weird ass accent the whole time too. Oh, and good. It, it, like it, it was. Everything's wrong with it. But Neil, mm. if you do want to enjoy the witches, go back and watch the 1991. You can see some Jim, Jim Henson puppetry there. Sounds good. And we're now into November, which means uh, if the real fans out there uh, know they watched <laughs> Nightmare Before Christmas on November 1st, right, that is the right. correct day to watch that movie. <laughs> Got to give a quick review after we've reviewed The Witches to uh, a new Oreo flavor that just recently came out, Mike. This was a very exciting uh, <laughs> discovery on my part. I was at the grocery store a couple weeks ago and found peanut butter chocolate pie Oreo. Of course, we shared these a couple weeks ago when we met up to uh, to play some music together. And uh, gotta say, not bad. Not a bad uh, new addition to the Oreo family. Mm -hmm. uh, it's basically a graham cracker Oreo. I'm gonna give a quick review here for the <laughs> listeners. In case you live in a part of the world that doesn't have these, which I'm not surprised if you don't, Oreo, very regional specific on what they release. We know very well that the Cakesters are no longer available in Canada, mm. America. We are very jealous of you. <laughs> but basically, you get a graham cracker Oreo cookie on each side, and then in the middle, it's a half and half, like the black and white cookie from Seinfeld. Half of it is chocolate, and the other half is peanut butter mm -hmm. and all in all it's actually not a bad sandwich it's you know smell really good you open it you know looks really good the cookies looks closer to a double stuffed oreo than a regular stuffed oreo so quite a bit of cream love that uh the cream comes off the cookie really nicely you can twist them apart perfectly um my only issues with it really is that the graham cracker cookie is a little bit too crunchy i like my oreo cookies to be a bit softer you know easier to chew i'm basically an old man that's what i'm trying to say <laughs> and also the issue i have with the half and half uh oreo cream center is that you really can't get every flavor in every bite because you have to like decide which half of the cookie to bite from and it's hard to get chocolate graham cracker and peanut butter all in one bite so that's true. all in all pretty good release but uh, i'm gonna have to probably give it a seven out of ten a solid 7 out of 10. Uh, it's very good. Uh, <laughs> uh, released by Oreo. You do the intro for it. Oh, <laughs> 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 Oreo's peanut butter chocolate pie Oreo released. Uh, uh, we should start doing that. <laughs> October 2022. Uh, 7 out of 10 rating and priced today at $3. Something like that, four ninety nine. I do respect that they only had it in the family pack. They didn't have oh, like a yeah. regular size pack. I love that. Like, give me the family pack. I'll I'll get through it. Don't worry. <laughs> I'll get through it. Uh, I, I I will too. And I helped you out there, Neil. And I I did enjoy mm -hmm. it. I'd give it a seven out of ten as well. It was nice. a solid sandwich. But uh, moving on to one mm -hmm. of our favorite segments, Neil. It's time for the mail mail bag. Ladies and gentlemen, if you want to write into the show, you can do so by leaving us a message on any social media platform that you follow us on, or leave us a rating or review you on spotify and apple podcast we will read it on the show just like mike who's our first write-in today uh first write-in today is christian who wrote hi mike and neil i've been loving the podcast y'all have been the soundtrack to my runs work days and gamecube gaming for the past few months uh I, so i appreciate the daily dose of nostalgia your podcast provides I started listening in August and since then have purchased a used GameCube and started replaying my old games as well as collecting some new ones. Thanks for getting me back into the GameCube and keep up the great work. All the best, Christian. 
Well, thank you, Christian. I'm really impressed to hear that you listen to us while running. I can never listen to podcasts when I run. I tried that. So if you're listening to us right now, uh, run harder. Keep running. Keep going. Don't stop. Run faster. Run harder. You got this. (laughs) You got this. You got this. Uh, And I always like hearing that we have uh, influenced the sale of used GameCubes, which is Mm. very nice to see. So GameCube was bought because of us, Neil. That's right. One that was already in circulation, of course, a part of the 22 million that sold. It just sucks <laughs> that we can't sell new GameCubes. I'd like to think that we could get a piece of that uh, that sweet Nintendo pie. But nevertheless, moving on to our next right in here from Pedrome27. Pedrom says, if it wasn't for you guys and this amazing podcast, I wouldn't have as many games in my GameCube collection. You've made it so easy for me to get info on games. Thanks a lot, guys. Sorry, Pedrome, for uh, making you spend uh, too much money, but uh, glad that we've introduced <laughs> you to some games. I mean, we've talked about over 500 now, so there's a lot of games that we've picked up, too, that we'd never even heard of two years ago. So we're right yeah. in there with you. Yeah, uh, that's uh, we, we influence ourselves sometimes, Neil. And uh, we have a really fun one here. This is actually a card that came in the mail to me, Neil. Uh, mm-hmm. This is from friend of the show, Kirsten. Uh, oh, she cool. sent a Halloween card to me. We talked about this a year ago or two years ago about Halloween cards. Who sends them? And apparently Kirsten does. So thank you, Kirsten. That's right. And inside uh, the, the the standard message says, hoping Halloween is as wonderful as you, filled with fun and laughter and happy things to do. Our, our Halloween was pretty good. Thank you, Kirsten. And she mm-hmm. writes inside, this is a callback to an episode about two years ago, I think. <laughs> back, <laughs> back when you guys said you've never gotten a Halloween card. I yeah. have never given one or gotten one uh, either, so this is a first. I hope question mark for all of us. Happy Halloween, guys! Love, Kirsten. The first official Halloween card of the GameCube is cool podcast. I hope that this becomes an annual thing now that we receive some Halloween. Let's see how many we can get as the years go by. That would be a lot of fun. Next letter comes in from Derek. Hey guys, side mission episode idea. Game Boy Advance peripherals for the GameCube, like the Game Boy Player Disc, Controller, Adapter Thing, etc. You could talk about games that made use of it, like Pokemon Coliseum and Ruby and Sapphire and Emerald for trading and battles. Also, Sonic Adventure 2. You could transfer Chaos with Sonic Advanced. I think you could find enough games that made use of this Game Boy Adapter to make a full episode. Also, I found out about the podcast from a comment on the GameCube subreddit. My first episode was the Mario Baseball one. I can't wait for the Twilight Princess episode. It's my favorite Nintendo game of all time. Derek, thank you so much for Mm -hmm. writing in. That's awesome. We have talked a lot about Game Boy Advance and Game Boy peripherals over the years. Just it does come up in conversation as like a side topic to the games that we're talking about. We love to find out what games did it well, what games did it could have done it better none none of them did it well (laughs) no maybe one or two did i can't even remember which ones are now maybe it was crystal chronicles or something but most of them are just yeah not very good uh we would love to maybe go back and uh, highlight the ones that did it well Mm. and did it poorly that would be a great idea for a uh for a side mission episode also glad to hear that you jumped in on the mario baseball episode i think a lot of folks did uh that was a really good episode we Mm. love that game a uh, very special episode for us. Very special game. Mike and I played it in person when we went to the cottage this summer. It was a lot of fun. And uh, we also can't wait for the Twilight Princess episode. It's coming up fast. It's one of the last games on the GameCube. Yeah, it's going to be one of our last episodes for the GameCube is cool. So mm-hmm. we're really excited to eventually talk about it. But until Twilight Princess, Neil, we do have some RPGs we got to get through. 
We do, Mike. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to episode 117 of the GameCube is Cool podcast. New episode every Thursday on all the major podcast services. We are the number one GameCube podcast on the internet. We're here to look back on all 555 North American GameCube games, one by one, sometimes 12 by 12. So far, we have covered 515 games. You can visit thegamecubewascool.com to check out all the things we've been working on. The website was developed by our very own Mike Lane. And that lady on the bus, Neil? Yeah, she's a developer. Mm. She helped. I knew she had something to do with the website. <laughs> Last week, we talked about all the NBA and NCAA games on the GameCube. We were joined by friends of the show, Harrison and Brian. If you haven't already, go back and check it out. This week, we are talking about three of the final RPGs on the GameCube that we have not covered yet. Tales of Symphonia, Batten Kaitos, Eternal Wings and the Lost Ocean, and Batten Kaitos Origins. They really shortened the title of that last one. <laughs> As we've said multiple times, Mike and I are not RPG guys, so as is tradition, uh, we're going to have a couple of friends join the show to talk about their memories of these games, how it influenced them on picking up JRPGs going forward, and playing these games again in 2022, because these games are actually still pretty good. Mm -hmm. But Mike, let's jump back into our memories and some facts about the series. Uh, do you remember either of these three games coming out back in the day? Neil, I think we can just kind of skip this one, because you know <laughs> that neither of us remembers these games. We just were not no. RPG kids. Uh, no. Not not the kind of games for us back in the day, but I would like mm. to transport us back to July 2004. Let's go back, Neil. Mm. So, I know very little of, of you know, the RPG tale series and Bat and Kaidos, but we're, of course, having friends on to talk more about them. But in July 2004, we're almost three years into the Cube's life cycle at this yep. point. And you want to hear what RPGs we have so far, Neil? Yes, please do. Uh, we have... Some you know, some of the RPGs that we have are Lost Kingdoms 1 and 2, Fantasy Star Online, which was for Dreamcast originally, mm -hmm. uh, Skies of Arcadia, which was also for Dreamcast, uh, Yu-Gi-Oh! Falsebound Kingdom, which was a Yu-Gi-Oh! game that no one knew uh, <laughs> what that it was actually RPG, uh, Final Fantasy Crystal Chronicles, the worst Final Fantasy uh, kind of version at this point, and there's yeah. a few more. But here's what other consoles had. Uh, oh between during the GameCube's life cycle up to two. Did you count Paper Mario in there? Uh, Paper Mario came out after uh, July 2004. So, oh, okay. Yeah. Sorry. Uh, that's okay. okay. Yeah. <laughs> um, here's the other uh, games that we had, other RPGs that we had on other consoles before July 2004 and after November 2001. We have Elder Scrolls Morrowind. Mm -hmm. We had Knights of the Old Republic. We have the Vampire Bloodlines game, a World, uh, World of Darkness game. Okay. Uh, we have Kingdom Hearts. We had Final Fantasy X and XI. We had Deus Ex. We had Fable. We had EVE Online. We had Diablo II. Many, many, many more. Uh, mm -hmm. Basically, what I'm saying is that it, <laughs> uh, the RPG library on the GameCube was really, really lacking uh, before 2004. Uh, mm -hmm. And that's like a, a really big miss on GameCube part, GameCube's part, especially with the whole maturity thing. We talked, obviously many times over the course of this 116 episodes before this about how the GameCube wanted to be the mature console. They wanted to get into this, um, get, get their, get their gamers back. Right. That was the whole tagline. And if I'm an older GameCube owner at this point, I'm pretty pissed. Uh, yeah. I, if I'm in the kind of my twenties when the GameCube is released or maybe late teens, there's a high chance I'm, uh, an RPG player you know, at this point in time, uh, or at least dabble in them, because that's just kind of what video games were back in the day, was sports yeah. games or RPGs in the 90s. Like, that was your main kind of go-to if you were you were, uh, you were were an adult uh, gaming. Uh, so it's, it's yeah. I think it just 
really showcases what a miss it was that we didn't have some of these excellent RPGs that are going to come on the GameCube later after July 2004, uh, and we got them a little too late, and that's kind of why they're considered these hidden gems of the console. Yeah, the GameCube was definitely lacking in RPGs compared to the PlayStation 2. I don't disagree with you there, but Xbox had less than GameCube did, I think, and GameCube has quite a bit more than the N64 did. I think the N64 maybe had three, if you count Paper Mario, three or four, not many. Uh, The GameCube definitely had more than the N64 did, and that wasn't for Nintendo's lack of trying. They had, at this point, uh, they were still recovering their relationship with with Square Enix, Mm -hmm. with... They had the Final Fantasy Crystal Chronicles game. I know they had lost all of the mainline Final Fantasies, which is too bad. They were just getting Fire Emblem off the ground. Uh, Xenoblade wasn't a thing yet, but we do, we are going to talk a bit more about Xenoblade later. But Bandai Namco did step up and put two games on the console, technically two and a half. Nintendo stepped in and published the last one. So they were trying to get more support on the RPG side. Yeah. It's too bad that we didn't get more Western RPGs on the GameCube. It was all Japanese RPGs, like you mentioned um Elder Scrolls and Knights of the Old Republic, it would have been awesome to have had those two on the GameCube to have a little bit of extra padded support and yeah. have some licensed RPGs. Because other than Yu-Gi-Oh, <laughs> most of the RPGs are Japanese role-playing RPGs. They were not based on any other franchise that we already knew. So uh, it really did take someone buying these games on a flyer to pick them up. Yeah. Like there, there was the Tales series. This was the fifth one in the series and the first one on GameCube. So you had to pick that one up on a whim. Baton Kaitos was that was the first game we'd ever seen from that franchise, and we only got two. Fire Emblem had just come to the stateside for the first time. So really, you were just buying these games based on maybe one review that you read in a magazine yeah. or one friend that you knew on the schoolyard, and you were hoping to God that the 50 or 60 bucks that you just spent on this game is good because I don't even remember seeing these games at Blockbuster. That's the thing is like, these are not Blockbuster rental games. Like you said, you'd get a lot of sports games at Blockbuster and platformers and shooters. And that was kind of it. They they didn't really have, I I definitely do not remember seeing Tales of Symphonia (laughs) at, at Blockbuster back in the day, but nevertheless, they have become very popular now. It took some time, but 18 years later and the switch gets, a new JRPG just about every other week, it seems. So yeah. definitely a good time to be a fan of of the genre, no doubt. But I guess we can probably talk a little bit about Tales as a series then before we have our uh, our first guest come on. Mm-hmm. So uh, Tales is a franchise of fantasy role-playing video games published by Bandai Namco, formerly Namco, and uh, developed by its subsidiary, Namco Tales Studio, up until 2011. Entries of the game generally stand independent from one another, and uh, they have different characters and stories. They're just linked together by the gameplay and the themes of high fantasy settings, obviously. The first one was uh, released in 1995 with Tales of Fantasia on the Super Famicom, and the most recent game was Tales of Arise in 2021, so a total of 17 games across 23 consoles, Not on the Gizmondo, not yet anyways. Yet. And the series, yet, not yet. And the series has sold 25 million copies worldwide. So it's about 27 years old, 25 million copies, 17 games. Not bad, but it's definitely still a niche game, despite having some moderate success. Niche game, but a lot of critical success is kind of pushed Tales through. There's been just a couple of badly uh, critiqued games uh, in the Tales series, for the most part, they all get very high on Metacritic, always in the eight and a halfs and the nines. Uh, and it's a very consistent series in that sense. Uh, and uh, Tales of Symphonia is no different, of course. It, it just felt like one in a long line of, of, uh, of really solid games. I think what makes it uh, makes these games so solid is the fact that they are 
very individual. Each game is almost like an anthology series. Uh, they're like, you know, very lightly linked together in certain mm-hmm. ways, but for the most part, they just stand alone. And I think that's probably what allows the developers to try new things and create new worlds and kind of have a lot of fun with it as well. Exactly. I love that. It reminds me a lot of Zelda and like yeah. the Mario games. They, for the most part, they try to weave them together a little bit. Uh, Tales of Symphonia did have a sequel. It was released on Wii. Again, we'll talk about that a little bit later. But what's weird is that the PS2 had five Tales games. Wow. <laughs> and the GameCube just had one, and it sold very well on GameCube. So I really don't understand why they didn't keep putting out Tales games on the GameCube. Maybe it was just because the GameCube, like we've talked about before, was selling poorly, and the PS2 was just such a juggernaut in sales. But yeah. uh, other than Tales of Symphonia, uh, PS2 had Tales of Destiny 2, which sold pretty well. That was a PS2 exclusive. But the rest sold worse than Symphonia did on GameCube. So hmm. it's really weird why the support just cut off there after uh, Tales of Symphonia. It's uh, it's too bad, but we did get a couple games on Wii, and I believe DS too. Also got a few games from Namco in the Tales series. So, it's it's uh, it's cool because I feel like the Tales series, despite being mainly on PlayStation since 1997, was the first one released on PS1. It does feel like a Nintendo series, especially with Tales of Symphonia, even though it was released on PS2. Uh, I don't believe it was ever released on GameCube in Europe. I could be wrong about that, but uh, it just feels like a GameCube game. Like when you yeah. people talk about their top 100 Nintendo games of all time or even top 100 GameCube games of all time, Tails is usually pretty high up. And I feel like it's not in the same conversation when you hear PlayStation owners talking about their PS2. It's it's true. And it's Tails, uh, at least for me, I, I did always identify it with the GameCube. Of course, I learned about it later. Uh, mm-hmm. But still, I I just knew it as a GameCube game, and the fact that we're getting a re a remaster, or remake, or whatever you want to call it, coming out mm-hmm. to new systems, to of course the Switch and and all those, uh, and people are still saying uh, even and after the PS3 one too, people are still saying that the GameCube one is by far the best way to play Tales of Symphonia. Still, awesome, I love that. Like yeah, looking at it today, it still looks beautiful. I feel like that we're starting to get into talking about Tales of Symphonia specifically. So, Mike, why don't we hit the stats and then bring on our uh, first caller? What do you say? That sounds good, Neil. All right. Tales of Symphonia was released on July 13th, 2004. Developed by Namco and published by Namco. This is a GameCube exclusive in North America. It was released on PS2 in Japan, later on PS3, Windows, and soon it will be coming to Switch, PS4, Xbox One in 2023. Shout out to anyone still playing the Xbox One in 2023. You guys are the real fans. Uh, rates an 8.5 out of 10. Priced today at around $35. And this is, of course, a Japanese role-playing RPG. I'm just kidding, Xbox One fans. You can keep playing in 2023. Do what makes you happy. The game sold 950,000 copies on GameCube, which wow. is awesome. And it sold 700,000 copies on PS2. So outsold the PS2, not by a lot, but when you're talking about numbers in the 1.5 million range, that's a quarter of a million is a lot of units. So good stuff. That's huge considering, you know, again, GameCube, let's let's say 2004, GameCube has probably mm-hmm. sold 15 million units uh, yeah. and PlayStation 2 had sold, I don't know, 100 million units <laughs> at this point, like kind of yeah. getting close to that. So, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, that's an insane number when you think about it in those uh, in the attach rate, I guess. Uh, per GameCube. It's incredible. And across all the platforms mentioned, it sold 2.4 million copies, making it one of the best-selling games in the series. Tales of Vesperia had just passed 2.8 million sold. So uh, I'm I'm sure that once uh, Symphonia Remake comes out next year, it will pass Tales of Vesperia. But uh, 
I think it's about time that we talked about what makes this game so darn special and stands the test of time against all the other Tales games. And I think that I hear our uh, phone lines ringing there, Mike. Who's our first caller of the day? That's right, Neil. Joining us today, our first guest of the show is friend of the show, Zaffer. This is his seventh and possibly final uh, episode for the GameCube is Cool he will be appearing on. Uh, To take the listeners back, he's been on Luigi's Mansion, Sonic and the Dreamcast, Super Mario Sunshine, Crystal Chronicles, uh, Kirby Air Ride, Fire Emblem Path of Radiance, and now Tales of Symphonia and Baton Kaito. So we're very excited to have Zaffer on today to talk about these games. But before we do... My first question to you, Zaffer, would be, what is your favorite entry into the Tales series? Hey, Mike. Glad to be here. Glad to talk about one of my favorite series of all time. Mm-hmm. Uh, my favorite Tales game is definitely Tales of Zillia 2 on the PS3. It's only on the PS3, although one day I am hoping maybe it'll come to Steam in the near future. <laughs> okay, okay. And now what makes that the number one? And that's a rare sequel as well in the Tales series. Yeah, uh, it's basically... Well, Tales is very grounded in its fantasy, but with Zillia 2, it they tried a modern spin on it. Um, it's it's very modern. Uh, there's guns, which is really surprising to see in the Tales <laughs> game. I mean, it's not out of the ordinary <laughs> entirely, but like they really tried to make it as modern as it possibly could, and that's what I loved more than anything. It was really different from anything else in the whole franchise. That's cool, actually. I, I I like that, especially in a franchise that is very much rooted in, like you said, like the high fantasy and everything. Yeah. And that you kind of come to expect something every time you jump into a Tales game. And like the fact that all almost all Tales games are very highly received. Like uh, we were saying earlier, yeah, eight and a half, nines out of tens throughout uh, throughout the series. And of course, Tales of Symphonia is no exception. So we got to ask you what your first experience was with Tales of Symphonia. So, Tales of Symphonia, oh man. Tales of Symphonia is what made me the JRPG-obsessive man that I am today. (laughs) I remember... This is the curse. (laughs) (laughs) I remember I was like, what, 12 or something? And I just walked into EB Games, you know, and I didn't know anything about, like, anything. And it was, it was... (laughs) I'm like, what are games? They were just advertising it everywhere. See, Symphonia got a lot of marketing. And that's what mm. made it really well known. And it, hit, it got me. Like, I didn't even know what it was. I was like, damn, that looks so cool. Like, look at those guys fighting. And I'm like, yeah, I want that game. And yeah, I just I got my mom to buy it for me. And I played it. And I, I became obsessed. I was insanely obsessed with it. So you bought it on a complete whim. You didn't. You had never heard of the series before Symphonia? Because that's the fifth game in the series. Yeah, yeah. Symphonia is what popularized, I would like to believe, uh, the series as a whole and made it more mainstream because before it was it was really underground and Symphonia oh man this is going to be a little controversial to say in the RPG world <laughs> but it's like okay. the Final Fantasy 7 of the Tales games like it's what made hmm. the series like renowned across the uh, the globe so to speak uh, you could even consider this the uh, Fire Emblem Awakening of the series, would you say? Yeah, yeah, I, I would say. Yeah. <laughs> every every JRPG seems to have that one. They seem to have like that one game that just pops, and then from there, yeah. it just kind of carries the series. But uh, the Tales series kind of had its ups and downs, even after Symphonia. Though I know you you said your favorite one was on PS3. There were also there was also one uh, on Wii, which was like the sequel to Tales of Symphonia. It's very much been like a series that kind of pops its head up on different consoles. Uh, nothing yeah. on Wii U, that's for sure, but, but sells <laughs> mm-hmm. best on Nintendo for the most part, which is great to see. It's kind of like Nintendo's unofficial RPG that they seem to get from time to time and always sell pretty well. 
Yeah, it's it's been through a lot these past few years, but back then, yeah, since only in the GameCube was a staple. It was a staple, and just like it sold extremely well on the GameCube for a late GameCube entry. That's the one that thing that really shocks me so well that it actually got a player's choice. Uh, so there are player's yeah. choice Tales of Symphonias. My favorite part about this though is that the player's choice copy released about a couple weeks after the original copy in North America because it had already been out for about a year in Japan and so they kind of just took the it's like well it's sold this well in the Japan we'll just release <laughs> we'll release the normal version <laughs> and a player's choice version so well deserved that, though well deserved yeah. <laughs> I, had, I had to look at that date like a couple times I'm like wait that still says July 2004 <laughs> when they put the uh, player's choice out so that was pretty funny but um, obviously uh, it did sell well it is a good game and then that begs the question why is this game so good in the RPG, I guess, Pantheon? Like in terms of comparing this to other RPGs that were out in the early 2000s, what makes it stand out, Zaffer? Well, from my experience, at the time, most RPGs were turn-based. And that's like the typical way back then. But Tails loves its action RPG combat. And at the time, that was revolutionary. You know, not many, not, not many RPGs I know back then really tried to make things in the more action-oriented. Nowadays, you know, you see it everywhere. Even Final Fantasy has turned into action. But back then, Tales was setting the bar for action RPG gameplay. And it was it was really different. And it was really fun. Um, it was It's really well-designed for its time. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, as series progressed, things get better. But at the time, Symphonia was really strong with combat. And alongside that, it's just such a well-built game. It's got such a fantastic story. It's got fantastic characters. Uh, the plot is well-paced. It's it's solid. It was just a solid entry for the time it was in. And, I mean, as a kid, I thought it was revolutionary. I'm like, what is this? Like, I've never played anything like this before. Mm-hmm. And it was so long, and it was so grandiose. I mean, obviously, there were there were tons of other JRPGs before it. Uh, mm-hmm. This is just me at that age and era in my life, right? Like people on, who were older than us probably had their like JRPG awakening on like the PSX or something. But for for Nintendo and for GameCube specifically, for GameCube, that was a staple JRPG that you couldn't miss out on. It's definitely the J- JRPG on the GameCube, I would say for sure. Uh, <laughs> yeah, and, and and the fact like so, what you're referring to. And I think, Neil, you know more about this as well, is the multi-line battle plan, which is what uh, makes this game so unique in terms of its uh, battle system. Yeah, the battle system for the Tales games is quite unique. It's called the multi-line linear motion battle system. Some of the fans of the series just shorten that to limbs. Yeah, they like to they like to overcomplicate the naming scheme, but <laughs> <laughs> totally allowed. But yeah, it's like you said, Zaffer. It's like a real-time battle system that was pretty unique at the time. Like a lot of uh, RPGs were very turn-based. This yep. one, the battle system, bared more of a resemblance to 2D fighting games like Street Fighter Two which is a great idea and does get fans of those types of more action-heavy games like myself mm-hmm. into RPGs. Like, I'm not the biggest turn-based uh, RPG guy. Like, I've played Paper Mario and I've played Pokemon like a lot of other Nintendo fans have, but it takes a lot for me to get into those games that last anything more than, like, 20 hours of that, and I'm, <laughs> I'm going to get bored pretty quick. But in a nutshell, it's defined as a system in which all characters can move throughout the battlefield and interact with their allies and opponents during battle. 
which is really cool, like the ability to interact with your with the characters that you're fighting with, and even the enemies that you're fighting against are all moving dynamically as well. They're not just staying in one place, hovering or doing the same two animations over and over again. It's a really neat way to switch between the overworld map in this game, which is beautiful. It's you know or- orchestrated music, the animations all nice, mm-hmm. the color pops, really vibrant colors, and then it switches over to this this other plane where you're fighting against the characters that you've run into in the map and it completely switches everything kind of like what we talked about with uh, fire emblem a couple weeks ago similar in that vein but fire emblem is more of a a turn-based game uh i also want to say that this game starts off and zaffir i'm sure you had the same experience as a kid but like when you pop this game in that opening video is hype like oh yeah i have it burned in my mind yeah the opening cinematics for like every i don't know what what japanese rpg developers were doing but i feel like they blew half their budget <laughs> on just that the opening sizzle reels of these games i don't know what's going on but for this one and for like baton kaitos like all of these games they all have such sweet hype like videos that start them off which eventually smash bros took too yeah from the openings i would like to believe that they took the influence from anime as a whole because you know anime openings in general are really oh, yeah. really flashy or really emotional and they just integrated that into their games and they're like yeah it's it's like it's the same vein you know it's an anime rpg let's just do that and yeah i remember as a kid i would never skip that opening i played the game for so many hours and i would never <laughs> never skip that opening i loved it it's a great opening it gets me hype like when i, I <laughs> of course I, I try and play these these games when we we talk about them and i i don't have 20 hours uh to spare unfortunately uh each <laughs> yeah. week but uh when i did play some of it i got uh you know i got into it a little bit and yeah that opening was so hype i was like let's go lloyd yeah i love lloyd <laughs> so of course lloyd is the protagonist the reason honestly zaffir you know how i know lloyd i know lloyd because you kept picking him for, for smash for us yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, Zaffer, Neil, and our some of our other friends would would do this kind of smash ballad every time that there was a new smash <laughs> character was going to be announced. Yeah. We would uh, all kind of try and get some picks and see which ones uh, uh, we would get. A uh, friend of the show, Dan, always wanted to go with Earthworm Jim. Unfortunately, he never got Earthworm Jim picked. <laughs> but uh, uh, Zaffer's kind of constant choice as well was Lloyd from Tales. And I always remember that being like, who's Lloyd? <laughs> he's like, oh, he's from Tales of Symphonia. I was like, okay. I know what, you Tales don't know series. Mike? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he got in as an amiibo. I'm not an amiibo. I'm me, I'm me costume. Yeah, yeah. So uh, kind of, right. you know, we got half points there for Zaffer on that one. Yeah. But um, of course, Lloyd is a popular protagonist as I learned, you know, more and more. And uh uh, and really, for me, playing the game, uh, it's I know the story is very complex and intricate, and it seems really cool. Uh, again, didn't get through the entire thing to experience it all. So, Zaffer, can you give us a little Cole's notes on, of uh, of what the story is looking like in Tales of Symphonia? I know that you're the chosen one. Yeah. And, uh, you know, as <laughs> as you are. Aren't you the chosen one in all of these games? That's right. But, you know, sometimes it takes <laughs> you longer to find out if you're the chosen one or not. So. <laughs> oh, okay. I got you. <laughs> yeah so okay the plot is incredibly in depth and i won't want to yes. spoil it for any of those who don't who don't know what it is but yeah so lloyd is not actually the chosen one it's his childhood friend colette colette right sorry yes and colette has to go on this pilgrimage across the world so lloyd's like colette i don't want to leave you alone because like he's he's obviously crushing on her and he's like, I know how to fight. I can wield two swords. So he wants to go with her on this journey. And what starts out as a typical, like, okay, we go here, you pray here. We go here now, you pray here. You know, things get more intricate and things get more complicated. And eventually Lloyd 
goes from you know just this kid who wants to protect his his childhood crush to like all of a sudden he's he's battling like a conspiracy theory and it mm-hmm. it just grows and grows into this conflict you know as, as all jrpgs do eventually the whole world is at stake and you know you got to save the world <laughs> of course of course <laughs> yeah what the one thing that actually kind of threw me was the fact that the voice acting and the characterization i guess of 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 these characters was it was quite well done like it was more mature than i thought it would be uh i went in with kind of low expectations on that front just because a lot of JRPGs I've played before, or even just RPGs in general, uh, it's it can be a little too much uh, sometimes, uh-huh. uh, where the plot is gets super cliche and the characters are like don't develop at all; they're just very one dimensional. Um, I was kind of happy to see in Tales that it was a little, it was definitely less so in that sense. It was much the, the characters did feel real; they felt three dimensional. The dialogue was was quite good as well in that sense. There seemed to be some uh, growth too, and and there was a couple twists and turns along the way as well. So. Yeah, there's tons of that. Yeah, it's it's extremely rich. Like, like it's a JRPG. It has to be rich. <laughs> yeah, it has to. Well, because but see, some JRPGs like well, you obviously play a lot more than I do, so you're the better judge of character on this one, Zaffer. But I find some JRPGs they're rich in the sense they're just a lot, like a lot of text, a lot of dialogue, but it's not necessarily helping it. You know yeah, I mean? that's those. Those are the ones we don't talk about. <laughs> <laughs> the world is still ending twenty hours later after this ten-hour conversation. <laughs> uh, I found tales to be to kind of eschew that, uh, and they they did a pretty good job of of keeping me in, uh, involved. I guess you could yeah, say. definitely, definitely. It's a classic, and it's a it's a game that really made me what I am today. It definitely does so many things right. Like we've we've covered pretty much all the JRPGs now on the GameCube, so all ten of them. So we are uh, definitely experts <laughs> on the uh, on the topic. But are there any improvements to this game that you would like to maybe see put into it that maybe Tales games have have kind of made over the years? Like there's been lots of Tales games since this one. Are there any improvements that you would make on uh, Symphonia? Oh gosh, Neil, I wish there was a full remake. Um, like mm-hmm. Tales then and Tales now is like night and day. It's mm-hmm. crazy how much the series has improved in, in pretty much every aspect in terms of its storytelling, its combat system, its its graphics. Like, like if you look sure. at yeah. the latest Tales, which is Tales of Arise, and then you look at mm-hmm. Tales of Symphonia, it's, it's incredible. You see the leap in, in everything. And I'm like, I'm always thinking to myself, damn, imagine if Symphonia was like this, in this kind <laughs> of modern era. And I would yeah. love for them to do like a ground remake, but that I feel like that's a pipe dream. But if it did ever happen, I w- you'd be the first one to know that I'm screaming. <laughs> <laughs> well, they are they are porting it to Switch, PS4, and Xbox One next year. Are they? Not? Yeah, we, it's we, just we a remaster, though. It's not. Yeah, a it's it's basically it's basically the like you know upscale like pixels, but it's it's the same game, more right? Or less. Well, and, and what what people are saying too is that it's actually the worst version of it. I'm not sure if you heard this. Happening, yeah, but, uh, the reason for that is because frame rate cap is lowered on the GameCube. It's 60, but they yeah. took the PS2 version. Which which is 30 and that's really yeah. weird uh, i mean there is more content it's... like there's more side quests and costumes to unlock but the, the the fps is a big one for most people it's you you notice it it's a big like i i, I was i watched a, a video like a comparison video between the two and it's very noticeable at least in my opinion yeah uh, and that and like 
that's such a you know what that that just gives the, the gamecube honestly more credence in my eye or just like like 2004 gamecube is like yeah dude i could do 60 fps like why can't you yeah. <laughs> right <laughs> and, and and so it is kind of cool to see that a lot of people still say that the gamecube is is still the best way to play this game um and uh, you can't say that about a lot of these gamecube exclusives at the time but this is one of them exactly what was what was shocking to me was that like as how high praised this game is like it's on everybody's you know top jrpg games it's on a lot of people's top gamecube games it, it, mm-hmm. you see it in everybody's collection like they always pause on tales of symphonia and like you'd think it sounds like it's a game that's high valued like a fire emblem path of radiance or like one of the Batten kaitos games but it's only 35 dollars which is weird like i i really thought going into this week that this game oh this game's got to be at least 80 like it's got to mm-hmm. be close to 100 dollars. but even with shipping like I, I could easily get this game for less than 50 bucks um i it's not really like it sold 950,000 copies on gamecube which is a lot for this type of game but it's not a lot compared to a game like melee which sold what like six or seven million which is priced twice or three times as much as this game i it, it's weird how low in value this game still is i would say like it's definitely worth picking up. I, we're, we'll talk about that at the end of the episode, obviously, but um, there's just a shocking fact for me that I found this week. Right, and I think that is attributed to how accessible the game is. Right, Path of Radiance is rare, and you can only legally play it on the GameCube, like without yeah. emulation and all that. But with Symphonia, it's on GameCube. <clears throat> it's on it's on uh, PS3. It's on Steam, and right. now it's becoming available on switch and and you know all the other modern consoles it's very accessible mm-hmm. you can get it from basically anywhere it's, and that's why it's probably not that highly priced because the supply is just all over the place yeah no you're you're that's 100 percent the reason why for sure and and then we have a game well, this is actually a good little segue because then we have a game uh that is priced extremely high uh, and that you can only play on the Nintendo GameCube. Neil, uh, do you know what that game is? <laughs> yeah, that's uh, Batten Kaitos, I believe I'm yeah. saying that game, right? Batten Kaitos, Eternal Wings, and the Lost Oceana, which I, d- I did not know that that game had that much of a subtitle to it, was released on November 16th, 2004, developed by Monolith Soft and Tri Crescendo. It's published by Namco. This is a GameCube exclusive, rates an 8 out of 10, Priced today at $80, and this is, of course, a JRPG, only sold about 300,000 copies on the GameCube, but uh, it's a pretty it's a pretty cool piece of history because uh, Monolith Soft, they're a developer now. They make uh, games that a lot of Nintendo fans would know and love, like the Xenoblade franchise. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, Zaffer, did you have a similar experience picking up Batten Kaitos? You walked into EB Games not knowing what the heck was going on in the world and uh, picked up a new game? <laughs> So, <laughs> so I actually remember this. Uh, after playing Symphonia, or during my playthrough of it, I don't remember when exactly. Uh, see, I, I loved going on GameFAQs back then because that was my source of like, like what's going out there in the gaming mm. world. And on GameFAQs, it was unanimous that if you liked Symphonia, you would like Baton Kaitos. Like, like everyone said that on the board. And the forums were like, yeah, 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 pick it up, pick up Baton Kaitos, pick it up. And I'm like, oh, okay, sure. So I just went to EB again. And I'm like, yeah, I want that one, mom. And she's like, yeah, okay. And then I ended up playing that game. And I also loved it. Not as much, but it's still a really solid game. So I got to say, I got to give some thoughts on this game. So I I knew less about this game than I did about Tales of Symphonia before we did this podcast. I, I had at least heard of Tales. And I knew the series quite well, obviously. But 
I had no idea what Batankaitos was. Yeah. I, I didn't even really? know how to pronounce it and still don't really know how to pronounce <laughs> it because uh, people always change it. But uh, it, I played it a little bit this week. And my God, this is maybe one of the most beautiful games it's I've gorgeous. ever seen. Yeah. Holy. I don't know how the GameCube is doing that. Like, <laughs> yeah. It's crazy. <laughs> it's it's honestly, if you, you can have no interest in RPGs or in this kind of gameplay, get this game just to for the visual like feast that you have with it. It's insane. I, I, I There's a lot we can talk about. I want to talk a little bit about the settings and the different uh, levels with you, Zapper, because uh-huh. this is my favorite part of the game. So there's many different kingdoms that you go to during the game. And basically the the, the, the landscape and the setting of this, uh, this game is that it's all these almost like islands in the air, islands in the sky, and these kingdoms in the sky. I think Avatar... Um, there's, there's a really random show from like the early 2000s called Skyland that was on Teletoon, I think, in Canada. Skyland. Yeah. Oh, really? No one knows about the show because it only ran for like a year. Yeah. I uh, haven't heard of it. And yeah, it's, I, I'm always the only one who knows it, but look it up. It's a real show. Maybe it's called Sky World. It's, it's something with no. Sky. Skyland? Skyland. Okay. You got it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I was right. So. It's also a supermarket chain in, uh, <laughs> well, there's a Skyland in Scarborough, just outside of Toronto. So we should go there. Okay. We'll go to Skyland. We'll watch Skyland and then we'll play Baton Kaitos. But it, yeah, it's, it reminds me of that <laughs> islands in the sky. Uh, and there's all these different kingdoms that your character has to go to. And we got like a farming village kingdom. We got big city kingdom. We got forest kingdom. We got desert, uh, or we got dessert a kingdom, aka like Candyland. Yeah, basically. yeah. Uh, we got uh, an eight-bit dungeon kingdom, which was insane. That was really, really, really cool. Tower of uh, Draga. I don't, I don't forget that. <laughs> oh, amazing. Uh, Shattered Glass Kingdom, and my personal favorite, and I'm not sure if it's yours too, Zaffir, but my favorite was the Picture Book uh, Kingdom. I forget what it's actually called, but oh my god, it's just so beautiful. Yeah, the memories they're flowing in. <laughs> yeah oh it's i couldn't believe it i was i was like whoa, whoa this isn't on the gamecube i was absolutely stunned and so i gotta give baton kaidos uh and monolith soft and uh try crescendo so much credit for making one of the most beautiful games i've ever seen yeah they created such amazing worlds like it felt like that they were kind of doing what paper mario thousand year door was doing but mm-hmm. making it a little bit more of a serious jrpg game but yeah, you're totally right. We do have to give a shout out to uh, Monolith, and not just for creating a terrific game, but for literally choosing the GameCube over the PlayStation for their games. They yeah. they noticed that the GameCube was lacking in JRPGs, and they said, "Well, we'll we'll give it <laughs> we we'll give guys. it one." <laughs> yeah, we, we got your back. Uh, so they gave it one. Unfortunately, it didn't go so well, and they didn't sell uh, great. So uh, they kind of gave up on it after the first game, which is really too bad. But uh, Try Crescendo were another JRPG developer, and they they came to um, Namco with the pitch for a new game at the same time Monolith Soft did. So uh, unfortunately, Namco didn't want to publish two games at the same time. So they just combined the two studios and said, you guys make a game together. And yeah. they got together. They they spent 18 months, uh, or about 18 months to two years from start to finish. A team of 50 people made this game. Like, it's just wild to think that games like this were made in such a short amount of time with a small amount of people, but it was just like a really dedicated group of developers creating this game. And they obviously, like you can kind of tell, they had some fun doing it. Like this, like you said, the storybook kingdom is something that is just so cool. Like it's a beautiful kind of looks like a glow in the dark mini golf kind of game. And <laughs> all the colors pop. Yeah. Like we said before, I don't know how this is running on GameCube. It looks absolutely terrific. 
and even the music in the game too is really good and mike i don't know if you found this fact oh but I, like I know this. it i know it. it's buddy who does dark souls yeah yeah motoy <laughs> sakuraba i believe is the sakuraba name. is a yeah he's a well-known composer <laughs> oh my god yeah he, he does tales too yeah yeah dark souls tales bravely default and even the mario golf and tennis games on switch he composes oh. the music for those games too <laughs> he's got a lot of credits under his name so it, it's a really neat little piece of video game history that unfortunately like we said didn't create much of a series there was a game that was supposed to come out on ds the third game but that was unfortunately canceled and all of these guys went on to uh develop other games and uh, took part in other projects and stuff so it's kind of sad but i guess xenoblade is kind of like the spiritual successor to uh batten kaitos yeah i would say there's a lot of mixture in developers with uh, Tri-Crescendo, Tri-Ace, Monolith Soft. They, they've all mm-hmm. co-developed a lot of really popular uh, RPG series. I won't, I won't go too on topic with this because I know we're mostly talking about Bad Kaidos and not the other IPs. But like <laughs> they've worked on Star Ocean. They, they have worked on Tales. And, you know, if you're an RPG fan, you, you know these companies. Like you have to know yeah. them because they, they're just all over. They've covered so much ground. Yeah, I mean, they're like the, the midway or acclaim of uh, the, you know, extreme sports <laughs> back in the early 2000s. All those kind of extreme <laughs> yeah. sports games were all yeah. made by like the, the same three or four developers. And, uh, right. and you know, they, they do that because that's their craft. They, 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 they're good at it. And they clearly, you know, showed in, these early, in the early 2000s that they can make these mm-hmm. games really, really well. And yeah, like Neil said, a short amount of time, 18 months, 50 people, pretty crazy to make something very, very unique. For the GameCube, of course, the setting and everything like that is what makes it unique for me. But Zaffir, is there anything else about Baton Kaidos uh, that you can remember that really made it stand out amongst the other JRPGs? Uh, for me, it was definitely the gameplay. Uh, it's it's turn-based, but it's turn-based with cards. And I've yes. never seen right. a JRPG do that. Um, I, I actually didn't understand it for the longest time, but... Eventually, you know, with trial and error, you, you get it. But it's so strange how you have to – you don't build stats. Like, you don't buy equipment. You buy cards. And then the cards are a deck that's randomly shuffled in the character's inventory. And when you enter a battle, you have, like, a random dealt card of either attack cards, support cards, defense cards. And that's how you play the game. It's a, it's a, it's a card mm-hmm. game, but it's a JRPG <laughs> card game. And it's so so unique for the series as a whole. So it's funny that you say that you haven't actually seen that with other games, but because there was weirdly a lot of J- like RPG slash card games on the GameCube, uh, but they were usually somewhat obscure games. So uh, uh, Fantasy Star Online uh, had uh, a it's called Fantasy Star Online Card Revolution. That was basically this uh, kind of idea in terms of like using the cards as as attack and defense. Uh, uh, there is false Yu-Gi-Oh! Falsebound Kingdom, which everyone thought was just a Yu-Gi-Oh! game, but it turns out it was an RPG that was using the Yu-Gi-Oh! cards in the, in a similar way as Baton Kaitos. And there's that's, also Lost Kingdoms uh, 1 and 2, which are these from software games that were very obscure that no one bought that are really expensive now <laughs> uh, that... <laughs> That did it as well. So yeah, all these you know obscure games and technically Baton Kaitos as well. Yeah, it's probably the best selling of all those ones, but uh, still a relatively obscure game that uh, lived and died on the GameCube. And um, so clearly, uh, the inclusion of cards was cool. 
but uh, not enough people bought them. <laughs> yeah, I was gonna say Zephyr, because this is early in your uh, in your life in your lifespan of JRPG playing, early mm-hmm. in your career as a JRPG uh, <laughs> fanatic. How 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 was it going from like a more traditional JRPG like Tales of Symphonia, where it was very action based or turn based, like one of the uh, Fire Emblem games? How was it going to? This was your first card based game. Was it jarring, or did you get did you get into it pretty quickly? It was very jarring, but because yeah. mm-hmm. all of the other aspects of Batman Kaito's really meshed with me, like its characters, its gorgeous visual design, its story, I was like, okay, yeah, let's let's understand this because I want to know what this game's about. So I I really like sat down and I'm like, okay, what does this card do? Like, what kind of builds can I do to do this and that? You know, like it was worth the time investment because the entire game as a whole was so amazing to me and i'm like i need to know where this game goes so it was different but i learned it because i loved it yeah i was gonna mm-hmm. ask from like someone who i don't play a lot of jrpgs but like this actually looks kind of interesting to me because i grew up playing card-based games mostly Yu-Gi-Oh and pokemon and whatnot so it's like okay this it's kind of like my in like i i played the physical cards so this should make sense to me how what would you say like the difficulty is for this game? Because from the outside perspective, this looks really complicated to learn. Oh, I had so much trouble with this game. <laughs> <laughs> I think I think I restarted it like five times, and then finally okay. I'm like, I'm gonna beat this game, and then I actually did. It it was really hard for me as a kid. I don't know, maybe now now that I have experience with RPGs in general, uh, I wouldn't find it as tough. But as a kid, I I restarted so many times because. Uh, there were missables, yeah. and there, there were big missables too. Like there were supers for the characters that you would miss, which I think is really bad game design. But that's a whole other topic. And <laughs> I just didn't like missing things, so I would play blind. Then I'm like, crap, I missed that. I would go back, I'd look into a fact, I'd be like, okay, this is where you get this and that. And yeah, it, it was it was a track. Um, it was worth it, but th- that was it was very very tough as a kid. <laughs> Well, even as an adult, yeah. Zaffir, because I was trying to learn it, and uh, it, it's it's very difficult to uh, kind of wrap your head around. I think especially because we are so babied nowadays for a lot of uh, just a lot of these games that like are very heavy on the tutorial aspect, are very heavy on just like the ease of ease of use. Uh, and just like uh, ease of access really for everyone. And Baton Kaidos is like, eh, here's a system that you probably have never experienced before. Yeah. Right. You can figure it out, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it really throws you in there. Yeah, which is good and bad because I, I don't like when games kind of hold, hold your hand like too much. But um, I'm, not, I, like, I'm not sure what they could have done anyways otherwise to hold your hand. It's just that the, the gameplay is complex. It's just how it is. And you kind of mm-hmm. just have to deal with it, which was it's a good and a bad thing. I wouldn't really list it necessarily as a con. It's just something that I feel like if you're not really into RPGs as a whole anyways, it would be difficult to really get into. I had one very specific and very obvious con. Zaffir, did you have the same obvious con as I did? I'm listening. I'm listening. <laughs> the voice acting. Oh, yeah. It sucks. <laughs> it's awful. Like, it's, it's so bad. I meme about it to this day. I have I have voice lines, like, imprinted in my memory because they're so terrible. You're pretty ugly. You know that? <laughs> it's so bad. And you know what the worst part is, is that, like, the, vo- the, the actual lines are bad. The voice acting itself is bad. The, yeah. the... 
the audio quality, I don't know if you noticed this too, Zaffer, but the audio quality is terrible. It's so echoey and like tinny and yep. coming right from Tails, which is actually sounds really nice and uh, has just a really good overall quality. And honestly, the voice acting in Tails is good. But um, uh, in Ban Kaidos, it's just so bad. And it <laughs> really, really took me out of it. Uh, luckily, there is a toggle so you can turn off voice acting uh, if you so wish, which I immediately did. But, uh, mm-hmm. uh, I, uh, but then I guess I missed out on some of those classic lines. Can you switch over to listen to the, just the Japanese version? I don't think they had that. I don't, believe, I don't believe there's a Japanese option. Um, that, that would I'd probably nice. prefer that. Yeah, yeah I would have preferred that because yeah, the the American voice actors they sound... yeah as a as a kid, you know, you don't have the same standards we do today. So I didn't really feel it back then. But I remember a few years ago, I was checking up the opening again because I wanted to feel the nostalgia. And then I heard the voices, and I'm like, oh, oh no, <laughs> <laughs> oh no. But but again, like the opening, the opening cinematic is pretty hype. Like it, it's it, a pretty yes. good opening yes. cutscene. Yeah, and then fantastic. it starts, and then it's like, oh no, these characters can talk. This is not good. <laughs> it would have been better if they had like a made up language, no voice acting at all, or a different language like Japanese. That way we could kind of take ourselves out of it because the North American voice actors, it all sounds very one take, and it sounds like they're recording it <laughs> from their Honda Civic on their way to work. Like it doesn't sound like that yeah. there's much much time or effort thrown into it. A lot of the development time was obviously thrown into the gameplay, which is pretty, in, it's pretty deep uh, but it does work and it's very ahead of its time a lot of card-based rpgs it's mainly an indie thing nowadays you see it pop up in the indie space quite a bit not so much in the triple a space but a lot of the development time was thrown towards that the uh the art style which is beautiful and the music which is awesome unfortunately the voice acting wasn't quite there but anyway what's crazy is that try um not try soft and that's try crescendo try crescendo yeah. i was like merging the two companies yeah. <laughs> <They should. laughs> try crescendo before this this is actually their first real game that they started working on uh before this try uh, crescendo was a sound design company that spent five years working on sound design for other companies games so come on how did they mess this oh, up oh <laughs> i didn't know that <laughs> yeah i i I, uh, I did some digging i had to, yeah. I had to, I had to find out why the voice acting is so bad <laughs> <laughs> but it is better in cutscenes, or it, it is better in the battle scenes at least the, the yeah, cut sure. scenes it's like very obviously bad but um there was another big con that i would like to share mm, uh, yes please so like most rpg i mean unlike most rpgs uh you have to manually level up in this one it's not like you just battle and then you get experience. And it's like, oh, I leveled up. Great. It's uh, you, you battle and then you get this nest of experience. And then you can only unleash that nest at save points. So if yeah. you're stuck at a certain part of the game because you're maybe underleveled and you're like, okay, I'll just grind these enemies. You actually can't do that. You have to find a save point that will let you level up. And uh, I, I found that really frustrating because it felt like it was artificially stopping me from getting stronger because it's, it's literally limiting you unless you find a certain save point. And I'm glad most RPGs don't do that, but this one did. And I think that was a really mixed way of, you know, impeding the player or making it harder on them. So that was another big con of the game for me. Maybe some people like that, but for me, I don't like that. That's a really good point. And like, do you think they did that because uh, because they didn't want people grinding? Basically, they wanted to kind of curl, uh, cur- curtail that. 
Yeah, I can see why, but that's that's also what made it also very difficult. And a lot of people got stuck on a very infamous trio boss, like midway mm. through the game. And I don't want anyone to feel that. You know, imagine playing for 35 hours or so, and then you just get mm-hmm. railroaded into a corner like that. And yeah, that's so sad. I don't want I don't want anyone <laughs> to feel that. <laughs> And and yeah, like you said, this is a very long game. I believe this is one of, if not the longest game on the GameCube. So it's uh, there's a lot of content in here and a lot of bosses, a lot of kingdoms, a lot of things to go through. And yeah, if you get stuck, uh, that sucks because it's a two disc game too. You know, you got to put the other disc yeah. in and everything. Yeah. You got to go back to the first disc. Come on, yeah, it's up there. It's about a sixty hour game and. Uh, it, it, it has developed a bit of a cult following, I think, over the years. Like, it's just a bit of an oddity on the GameCube. It's a hidden gem. It's a weird It's a weird game. Uh, no sequels, no ports or anything like that. But I really don't think that the majority of people that picked this game up liked what they played. Like, I think that, like, 300,000 people bought the first game, which is fine. Like, it's not great. Then only 100,000 people bought the second game, Origins, which some of that would be people returning back because they liked the first game. I think the rest is people buying... Batten Kaito's Origins because they probably thought that might have been the first one because it is yeah. it's a prequel um, but going from 300,000 down to 100,000 copies is is pretty bad so I, I really don't think that this the way that this game was packaged is the way that people want to play card based RPGs there are games that have come out recent more recently I was looking up a list of card based RPGs that are way more popular and it's all indie games like Slay the Spire is considered one I've right. heard a lot about that game it's me considered too, one of too. the best card based R- yeah it's considered one of the best card based RPGs but it came out like 20 years after uh, Baton Kato's did so it's had time to refine and polish that uh, that system. mechanic so yeah that that card based system so this is a pioneer of the genre but it is like a niche genre within a, a, another niche genre basically so yeah it's a small pie of a smaller pie you know? i'm not sure why origin sold less but for me i didn't even know it existed so i had a Wii. that's why <laughs> yeah and i'm like is it the same issue as path of radiance where it just wasn't marketed because i didn't know about path mm-hmm. of radiance and then about radiant dawn which was the sequel and i'm like what's going on and i that could be the same reason like because baton kaitos was relatively well known and I had no idea it got a prequel. And I, I wish it, yeah. I would have played it if I knew back then. Uh, now it's like it's a relic in the past. But, you know. The, the fact that it got released in 2006, uh, yeah. like very close to the Wii coming out, and that it wasn't put on the Wii. Yeah. It's just interesting to me that uh, Baton Kaidos didn't get that treatment at all. And neither did Paper Mario uh, uh, A Thousand Year Door. So, um, like, it's is Nintendo just. Uh, saying no to RPGs on the Wii? Like, what was going on there? Just, I don't know. Uh, strange decision. They definitely were on the lower end of priority because I remember Xenoblade and another game, I can't remember its name, Yeah, weren't even slated for North American release until that whole Operation Rainfall right, yeah. petition came to be. And now they're, they, they're like, we love RPGs. Yeah. <laughs> they're always marketing <laughs> Fire Emblem, Xenoblade, et cetera, et cetera. It's a different market now, for sure. I think that the Bat and Kaitos games could have done really well on Wii as well, because the pointer controls, I think, would have lent itself better to the card-based system. Like, being able to quickly pick a card by pointing your controller at the screen would have been a little bit more user-friendly than having to use a controller. I could be completely wrong, but just imagining it in my head, I feel like that on Wii, a card-based RPG would work really well. 
Yeah, um, I can but it's see too that. bad. Like like you said, it was a really difficult time for RPGs until Project Rainfall blew it right open. But now we just get Xenoblades and Fire Emblems every other year. So. <laughs> <laughs> Zaffir's dream. <laughs> yeah, I love it. Well, Zaffir, is there anything you'd like to say about Baton Kytos or uh, Tales and Symphonia before we let you go for the day? Well, I actually have a question for you two regarding Baton Kytos. <gasps> so Ooh. were you two aware that in the latest Smash Bros. game, there is a Baton Kaito song inside of it. <gasps> I did not know no. this, actually. See, so that was a fun little uh, little gem they added in because a lot of the sound team worked on Smash Bros. And right. they have Xenoblade in Smash Bros. And, you know, a lot of people who worked on Xenoblade worked on Baton Kaito's because of the whole Tri-Ace, right. Tri-Crescendo, Monolith Soft collaboration. So... Mm-hmm. They couldn't get a rep in, uh, but they did get a song in, and it's it's the battle theme. And hearing the battle theme of Baton Kaitos in modern rendition was such a treat, and it was it was it was pure fan service. And just seeing that kind of representation in was was incredible to me. I'm like, holy crap! They actually acknowledged Baton Kaitos like over a decade later. <laughs> I thought it was amazing to me. That is amazing. Thank you for sharing that. I am literally after this call, I am going to my GameCube. Or sorry, to, <laughs> going to my Switch, <laughs> attempting to put my Switch cartridge in my GameCube, failing, <laughs> then going to my Switch and playing uh, Super Smash Bros. Ultimate to find that track because I really want to listen to that, like the orchestral, I guess, 2018 version of it because uh, it's such a good all the, the the soundtrack of that game is so good i knew instantly as soon as i heard i was like oh this sounds like the the last song from uh dark souls the uh, when you fight lord Gwyn. i was like this this is definitely a dark souls composer <laughs> and then yeah i looked it up i was like yep yeah. i was right uh so that's the, one of the best things about that game for sure is the soundtrack and that it's in smash that the battle themes in smash is so so cool so thank you for sharing that yeah zephyr did you ever predict that uh did you ever predict that there was going to be a baton kaito's character in smash i could have remembered i could have sworn i remembered you uh talking about that i mentioned <laughs> it like once so that's probably what okay. you're thinking of. Uh, you might have mentioned it really I, hard once yeah 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 because i was like i was all about lloyd and i might have let it sit during my Lloyd fanatic. <laughs> the Lloyd phase. I think I think there's a chance that we could see it at some point. Baton Kaitos and uh, Tales of Symphonia. I think both those characters still have a chance of being in Smash at some point. But I think first we need to see like a Switch version of both of these games come back. And then there's a better chance of it. But until then, we'll have to just settle for uh, really good soundtracks in uh, mm-hmm. Smash stages. Absolutely. Yeah, well... I'm going to go and listen to that soundtrack right now on the Switch. But uh, Zaffir, it's been great having you as always. We always love having you on the show to talk about some of your favorite memories of these games. And uh, you have a wealth of knowledge about RPGs that we honestly simply don't have. So it's uh, you are a very valuable resource. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for having me. I always love sharing my passion for jrpgs as you know (laughs) (laughs) well we are done the jrpgs on the gamecube now but we'll probably be talking about more in the future so we'll have you back on again real soon would love to be here absolutely sweet awesome thanks Zaffer. thank you so much bye what a nice young man what a nice young man thank you Zaffer, for coming on for the seventh time on the gamecube is cool podcast uh we always always love having him on again just great knowledge about rpgs and what really is what really i love having him on for is the fact that he actually played these games back in 2004 and 2005 
pretty crazy and very different world back then. Obviously, we were transported back to July 2004, and so we are back in that world. And yeah, it was a very different world, especially for Nintendo and RPGs and the relationship with them. Uh, a little bit of a frosty relationship for sure in terms of marketing and in terms of um, porting them to their new consoles and everything, like we said. But uh, yeah, it's an interesting history, and uh, I was really glad that we got to have Zaffir on for it. Yeah, me too. I'm always interested to hear like what kind of marketing cut through to other kids because Zephyr yeah. is the same age as you and I and he mentioned going into an EB Games when we would have been going to EB Games 12 years old that was peak Mike and Neil going to EB Games to pick up GoldenEye or whatever James Bond game or Spongebob game or Mario game we were buying but none of those ads ever broke through to me anytime I saw an anime game that wasn't Dragon Ball Z or Yu-Gi-Oh or Pokemon, I just thought it was based on an anime that I didn't watch, but these were actual RPGs. Like, I didn't really know what Final Fantasy was, or I certainly didn't know what Xenogears was, or Fire Emblem, or uh, T Tales of Symphonia, or any of these games really caught my attention at all, but he happened to be in an EB Games on a certain day and saw the posters and saw the game behind the counter and begged his mom for it where none of that crossed my eye at all. So it, it's cool that it it, uh, it appealed to him, not so much to me. It's been 20 years and they, they still don't, but they are beautiful games. Like for 2004 to have played a game like uh, Baton Kaitos, like that would have blown my mind because I was just so used to playing these cartoon games that, let's be real, they don't look great, but they're they're no. fun to play. To, to, to see a game like that would have absolutely blown my mind. I would have thought, you know, games could never look any better than this. And Well, we thought that for Nightfire. I thought I remember saying that exactly for Nightfire on Christmas morning that day. But even now, looking at Baton Kaitos, like there are some games that are released on current gen hardware that don't look as good as this. Yep. So, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> in some ways they stand the test of time and other ways they don't. But it's that's why it's really interesting to uh, to look back on them 18, 20 years later. Yeah, yeah, it's pretty crazy. And uh, yeah, there is another Baton Kaitos game on the GameCube as well. So we're actually going to bring on a guest to talk about that game as well as uh, diving back in a little bit to the uh, Baton Kaitos Eternal Wings. Uh, but uh, before we do that, Neil, why don't you actually read the, the little stats of uh, Baton Kaitos Origins? We can get right into it. All right, sounds good, Mike. Baton Kaitos Origins was released on September 25th, 2006, developed by Monolith Soft and TriCrescendo. They are back, but this time it's published by Nintendo. Namco had lost total interest in the series after the first game. Uh, this is another GameCube exclusive. Rates a 7.5 out of 10. This is the expensive one, priced today at $200. This is, of course, a JRPG, like we've talked about already before, and like I said, when Zaffir was on, the game only sold about 100,000 copies and was never even released in Europe. So uh, I'm actually quite surprised, Mike, that we were able to find somebody to come on today to talk about it who's also played this game. So why don't we bring on that first caller? Who's joining us today? And joining us today, Neil, our second guest of the show. Well, we got two guests, actually. We have brothers Corbin and Evan from the great YouTube channel uh, Gaming Productions. Uh, they have great videos about RPGs, and that is why we brought them on to talk about some Baton Kaitos today. But before we do, we do have a question for both of you. We can start with Corbin first. Uh, did you own a GameCube back in the day? Yes, yes I, did. I did. Got it for Christmas, actually. I think it was like the year it came out, I believe. Nice, nice. Sweet. And and did you uh, did you have one too, Evan, or did you have to share it with your brother? We share the exact same console. <laughs> oh yeah, it was that good old purple GameCube. Nice, God, Indigo. I love it. I love it. And did your parents have uh, the foresight to buy a memory card for you guys? 
Uh, I think so, because by that time, memory cards were pretty common with the PS1 era, and they always knew I was asking for them, so I feel like they had that knowledge. You see, if you came from an N64 household, which I did, uh, your parents might not have known that uh, that they needed a memory card. <laughs> Luckily, mine did, but I think that they just talked to whoever was like the best Toys R Us or EB Games employee at the time, because my mom and dad got the GameCube, a memory card, and the Game Boy Advance player all at once, and I was like, there's no way you bought, there's no way you guys got all this like on a whim. Like You definitely talked to somebody <laughs> at, uh, at EB Games. Um, but yeah, like if you were an, if you were a PlayStation one kid going to the GameCube, I can definitely see how parents knew automatically because the PS one had a memory card, but going from N64 to GameCube, that was a, that was a huge shift for us. We needed to buy a whole memory card. It was a, it was a hassle. (laughs) Yeah, that's true. I I remember the N64 had like a few games that did require a memory card, but I don't remember which ones they were, they were at all. It was like definitely the exception though, for sure. Yeah, mm-hmm. like just a few of them and the expansion pack and whatnot. But uh, oh, yeah. yeah, of course. But yeah, that's a whole other story. No Baton Kaitos on N64. But of course, we did get two Baton Kaitos games on the GameCube uh, quite late in the GameCube's life. So did you guys get this game when it first came out back in the day? I'm trying to remember exactly when it probably was a few months after it came out. I remember reading some uh previews about it in magazines and i had you know i was really big into rpgs at the time and it looked like it had a lot of similarities visually to a game called a uh, chrono cross which was mm-hmm. a game i really loved back in the day um so instantly i was like very interested in it did you know at the time that the game developer tetsuya takahashi was one of the developers on chrono cross at the time and this is kind of like was his next project was that something you'd actively knew back in 2003 for me, I did not know, but once we made the video uh, some months back about, you know, the first game, that's when I realized that, oh, yeah, he was involved with that. So it's kind of a cool little fact to learn. Mm-hmm. I don't think I knew, like, the exact name, but I do remember reading a little bit in a magazine that was saying that there was some connection to Chrono Cross with some of the previous game uh, creators and designers and whatnot. Yeah, that was something that I didn't really care about when I was, I was only about 11 years old at this point, And, like, the game's developer or the game's director or whatever i did not really care like i was not a play if you're not a playstation guy like who the hell's hideo kojima like you barely (laughs) might know miyamoto or something so like it's definitely something now that gamers care about like the director of a game moving to different studios developing a different game they kind of have a bit more of like clout once they develop a good game and then they move around so like it's fun to look back and notice like oh he worked on xenogears and chrono trigger and chrono cross and then he did Baton Kaitos and then moved on to Xenoblade. It's, it's kind of cool that we can now track these guys' careers, but back then, no one really cared all that much. You just wanted to play some good JRPGs, and you found some on GameCube, luckily. Exactly, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. And when you got you guys got this game, kind of what was the what was your first experience of playing Baton Kaitos? Like, because this is quite a different game than I would say a lot of where we talked about Tales earlier on the episode. It's quite a different game from different RPGs that were out at the time. It's, it's really a visual feast. Yeah, so um, definitely the biggest thing that sticks out is like the card-based battle system, which was, you know, there were some games that did that did cards, but overall that was not very common within like the JRPG genre and whatnot. Um, yeah. So that alone was like very different. And normally I wasn't a huge fan of kind of card-based games in the past, but Bad and Kaidos was like the one to kind of get me to come around on them. I feel like it made it really fun and not needlessly complex or convoluted like some card games can be 
And what about the difficulty then for that? Did you find that you could pick this up relatively easily, like you said? Or Because I, I know one of the cons of this game, it can definitely be how hard it actually gets, especially as you go on. There are probably a couple times I ran into some tough bosses where I need to re- rearrange my deck and realize that, okay, there is like a lot of strategy that goes into the deck building portion. I can't just like mm-hmm. kind of put in the most strongest cards and not worry about like defense and you know, other like kind of the more com- complex stuff. Um, so I guess I learned as the game went on that, yeah, there was more strategy initially involved than I uh, thought there was. There's also a big element of luck, again, yeah, based on what cards like come up. So, um, which that part can be hit or hit or miss. It definitely is fun when it works in your favor. Um, but when you get a, just a bad deck and a bad bunch of draws like back to back to back, then that's not fun. We just talked about that with our friend Zaffer, and he mentioned like when he first picked up this game, he just bought it on a whim because when he went to the game store that day, his he saw all the signs up for it, and he loves RPGs, so he just wanted to dive right into it. And he had never played a card battle game like this before, and he had to restart certain levels several times because he had just bad luck with cards or missed something completely, didn't level up the right character at the right time. In some cases, he said he had to start the game again, unfortunately. Oh, wow. So he was a l- little bit frustrated with the, uh, the difficulty <laughs> spike of the game, which I think years later, he's gotten better since we were so young at the time. Now, the card battle RPG uh, genre is kind of, it's a bit bigger now than it was back in the 2000s. So have you gone on to play many more games like Baton Kaitos, or do you kind of stick more towards the more action RPGs? So I haven't really played a whole lot of card games after that. Um, I normally stick to more... Uh, turn-based traditional RPGs and some action RPGs also. Um, but yeah, card-based games in general is not one that normally makes it into my backlog. Because I tried playing like the Pokemon card game, and that was fun for a bit. I kind of got into the Final Fantasy VIII card system. I don't know. I just like using that one a lot, though. But mm-hmm. kind of like Corbin, yeah, I kind of stick with just you know traditional and action-based uh, role-playing games, things like that. But um. Obviously, you guys have a great channel dedicated a lot to mostly RPG games and JRPGs. What got you guys into these kind of games even before Baton Kaidos? Man. <laughs> Super Mario RPG and Pokemon Red and Blue were like definitely my gateway games into like delving into more serious RPGs. And um, I think my parents bought me Super Mario RPG Legend of the Seven Stars just thinking it was like a normal Mario game, like a platformer or something and then obviously start playing and the gameplay is like completely different (laughs) i didn't even know that that was like a type of genre i just thought it was just like a unique style of gameplay to that game only Mm -hmm. so when i found out about more rpgs after that i was like oh wow like i didn't know like this was a whole style of like games and my mind was kind of blown and then i just got really into rpgs after that and try to get my hands on anything i could find that had the rpg title yeah, exactly. You know, our dad's actually, he helped us, I think, beat the game, though. Uh, Super, Mario, Super Mario RPG uh, beat Smitty at the very end. So yeah, he helped us with some bosses because we were, like, you know, super, super young, yeah, not the yeah. smartest about how to actually <laughs> utilize the game's mechanics. So um, he definitely helped us get past some bosses. Those are great gateway RPGs. I've played both of those, too. Pokemon was just, everybody played Pokemon. That was basically an RPG, and no one even really noticed it. Yeah. Like, it was yeah. like, it just mm-hmm. snuck into your life, basically. And Legend of the Seven Stars is is awesome on uh, SNES. Basically opened the door for Paper Mario on N64 and GameCube, which are terrific RPGs. 
but in Batten Kaitos, I gotta ask, because this game does look like, from an outsider's perspective, which Mike and I are, we don't play many of the the JRPGs. We do dip our toe into RPGs occasionally when they uh, they plaster it with Mario or I love the South Park RPG. What about what about Batten Kaitos's story stands out for you? Does this does it have anything that kind of stands out from other RPGs of the time or now? Um, so there are some unique elements to it. Um, for uh, first first of all. Uh, you don't actually, I guess, you yourself in the game are like a guardian spirit, like controlling the character, and they actually like talk to you directly in the game. If that kind of makes sense, so they like address you as like the player, whatnot. So that was kind of like a different perspective of story storytelling. I feel, um, and really, like, I feel like the biggest strength, one of the biggest strengths about the game is just the overall atmosphere. Yes. Not necessarily the story itself. The story itself isn't bad, um, but I felt like it was just the really magical, imaginative like atmosphere and like just wondering what the next place an island was going to look like that kind of yeah. really kept me like going. Yeah. Love bright colors. Love just the music that goes with it. It's just a whole package deal, you know? It's unbelievable, like the music and the 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 settings and everything. Like for me, the kingdoms, the different kingdoms, were what made it so unique and so different. And wanting for me to keep playing it and keep seeing like what was coming next. Like you said, uh, Corbin, uh, for you guys, do you have a favorite uh, kingdom? Mira from the first Batten Kaidos game is that the one that has like the really crazy locations? It has like that story, yeah, that yeah, picture book, book style town. Yeah. That's my favorite. Yeah. <laughs> and like that town like made of uh desserts and whatnot. Yeah. yeah. That yep. that uh I yeah. had a lot of really unique and memorable locations for sure. There's also of course the eight bit dungeon kingdom, which is amazing. Yeah. Uh so cool. Oh right, yeah. Uh, a little like dungeon crawler style. Uh, that yeah. was awesome. Picture book, uh forest land. It's crazy. Even the shattered glass kingdom too later on in the game. It, it's the the lo- locales are are so unique and I know most of it's all pre-rendered backgrounds and but it, it it's pretty amazing what the GameCube could do in, in 2004. You look at some of these other games that were coming out at the time and they can't even come close to the the kind of style that uh, the GameCube is able to achieve with these games. Totally. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. I, I love the different worlds that they did in these games. Like, it's something that I feel like a lot of video games just miss the mark on completely. Like, part of playing a video game is looking forward to making it to the next level and seeing, like, what's going to change now. And when you play a lot of Nintendo games, it is very much like, okay, we're going to go to the desert level and now the jungle and now the ice and now the lava and then space maybe and then that's it. But this one literally changed the art style on you. Like, it, it went, like you said, from the storybook, bright fluorescent colors to more faded like pastel or whatever color, like watercolor colors and everything. And it just, it, it really made you want to get to the next level, which which is a great thing for video games to do. And I feel like that that art style has been lost over the years. Like every level feels like, especially in like the AAA space, everything is just realistic city, gray, brown, and <laughs> yeah. just overall generic, unfortunately, which is too bad. But uh, one thing I think, Evan, you might've touched on earlier is the music in this game. The soundtrack is absolutely phenomenal. Do you guys have much experience i guess like, <laughs> listening to me <laughs> do you guys have, yeah. uh, do, do you guys have uh, like any favorite tracks or like what was your first opinion of the music from these games yeah i really do love the music uh motoi sakadaba always like has really really great great work and i do think this is some of his more memorable um games for sure mm-hmm. the track that plays in the opening town of the game i forget what it's called but that one's really 
Yeah. Relaxing. It kind of gives me like Arnie Village vibes from Chrono Cross, which is always a plus. Even the music that goes to like the opening cinematic is really good. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I agree with that. So yeah. hype. <laughs> you know, it all like complements each other very uh, nicely. And moving on now to the second game of uh, of today's topic. So Baton Kaito's Origins. So this was a prequel, which I didn't actually know before kind of diving into this game and, and learning more about it. What uh, what what experience do you guys have with Origins? I don't have as much experience. I did play it briefly as a kid. I never got super far with it. Um, and I didn't actually own it completely until I kind of more recently in the last like three or four three or four years I finally bought myself bought myself a copy um, but I haven't like dove back into it since so I really don't remember much other than like kind of how it starts out and the opening like premise of the story and the characters and whatnot I mean it's an expensive game now too you know it's uh <laughs> definitely rare just it buying is. games in general is a super dumb expensive yeah. now yeah. Yeah. collecting is a nightmare right now I- I feel like I caught it like a really a really good time kind of before the GameCube boom happened and like a lot of those prices started skyrocketing and whatnot. Um, I think I found it at Vintage Stock for maybe 40 or 45 bucks. Wow. Which, um, nice. You know, now I haven't checked the price, but I want to say 200. it's probably close. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah. 200 so, Canadians. So, <laughs> 200, 200 Canadians, that's like one. I don't know how I got so lucky finding it in the wild for like a pretty reasonable price. I think it was just right place, right time, one of those moments, I guess. I mean, it does make sense that it's going to, it's probably going to keep going up because, of course, this was an extremely late GameCube game. September 25th, 2006. The Wii was just about to come out. I have no idea why this was not just put on the Wii as well, uh, or even just made for the Wii specifically. Like, it doesn't make any sense at all. The quantity definitely wasn't there in terms of sales. I'm sure it didn't sell that well either because, again, GameCube was out on its last legs. People weren't buying new GameCube games in 2006 other than Twilight Princess, maybe, yeah. right? So It was just bad timing in general for this series, unfortunately. Like Mike said, it is one of the last big exclusive games. I think it's the last big exclusive game for the GameCube. Technically, after, after this one, we had Twilight Princess, but that's, of course, a Wii game as well. So this is the last exclusive that was a big game, big deal, published by Nintendo, and... The producer did go on to say that, unfortunately, they were just wrapping up the game's development when the Wii was announced, so they probably didn't have the production budget, time, or effort, willingness to port it over to Wii, and that was unfortunate because it definitely did not sell as well as it could have. Only about 100,000 copies worldwide, never came out in Europe, so it was kind of doomed to doomed from the start, unfortunately, and after Origins came out, the team felt like rather than try to continue the series on Wii, they just wanted to create a new game, which they would. The, the game Disaster Day of Crisis in 2008 was their next project after uh, Baton Kaito's Origins. That one came out and it was critically fairly well received. It was basically good, according to most people, which was the same case for Baton Kaito's 2 Origins, rated about a 7.5 out of 10. So it was very much a good sequel. Um, it It was just based on a game that, or a sequel to a game that sold moderately well and was a niche genre inside of the JRPG genre. So it, it it just had a hard time, unfortunately, in the market. Everyone was moving on from, from these types of games and moving on to different consoles as well. But there were some differences and similarities to Baton Kaitos 1. Specifically, the card-based combat is still there, but now this game felt a bit more like an action uh, combat rather than it being turn-based. You would play the cards live, basically, while the characters are still fighting. Uh, this is kind of a cool concept and made the game feel a little bit more dynamic just watching it. Did you guys 
kind of did you enjoy that more that difference or did you prefer the turn-based combat um i do remember you you share a deck i think between like all mm-hmm. of your characters and origins yep. compared to the first the first the first one where you have to do it all individually for each character um so i do like that it kind of streamlined that and made battles go by a, a bit faster mm-hmm. um which was kind of one of my gripes about the combat in Bat and Kaidos one, just the overall pacing, just kind of moved a little slow after a while. I felt, even though the battle system itself was very, very fun, um, so I do like that it sped up pacing a bit. Uh, again, it's been a long time, so I haven't really. It's hard for me to compare it when I when I haven't played it yeah. recently. Um, but I do feel like there was a lot of welcome changes made. Yeah, I'm always down when games trying to like do something, uh, do something a little bit different, though. Just uh, experiment, but same time, you know, the first one is probably, as Corbin said, maybe the better one. Yeah, it's it's certainly the better one, I would say, and the one that's going to be more remembered as well. I think just the the, the locales in uh, Baton Kaidos one were just so mind blowing. I guess when you first saw them, the 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 atmosphere just I feel like isn't the same in Origins. Uh, maybe it's because of that fact. Like you you see something once, and it's when you see it again, kind of redone. It's like oh, okay, well this is whatever. But uh, I just feel like like one you know really grabs you. And they did try different things with the gameplay and everything, which I appreciate in in two. But it, it just. It wasn't the same, and also, you know, it's 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 just a game that was unfortunately doomed to fail, which is really too bad. Yeah, they used all the same. They used the same engine as Baton Kaitos One Two, so that cut down on development time. They also used less cards. So in the original game, there was a thousand collectible Magnus cards. In Origins, they only had six hundred fifty-five. There was also no CG opening movie, which is too bad because, like we said, that movie in the first game was hype. Uh, would have been cool if they could do that again. Doesn't add much to the game, but Still. the most unfortunate fact for me about this game, and, and you guys might enjoy this, is that uh, the director of the game, Yazu Yuki Own, that's my best shot at that name, <laughs> uh, in 2003 actually pitched a sequel to the Mother Earthbound game on SNES and wanted it to be like a claymation style uh, video game. And he pitched that to Nintendo, but unfortunately that project was rejected. Uh, so instead, they just basically took that concept and put it into uh, the town Sedna in Origins. But I really hope that they mm. can go back and, and take the now Xenoblade development team and make an Earthbound claymated game. That'd be so cool. Have you guys? Do you guys know much about the Earthbound series? Oh yeah. <laughs> I remember I went to a game game store back in Kansas City. And I bought I think for like just a cartridge for like twenty five bucks. This is like maybe wow. like oh six maybe. <laughs> and of course, then it's like I can't imagine what it is now. It's like super dumb expensive yeah because who knows if that's ever going to come out because yeah they the i can't believe the art director like hat pitched that that would have been so cool because like honestly baton kaidos is all about the art direction so like good on him for being like hey i can i can make this game good i swear i could make a new one yeah it's, uh, it's, oh i'm down with it bring it to life yeah, definitely <laughs> do you see any future for baton kaitos do you see nintendo trying to go back to it, trying to remake it, maybe do some kind of remaster? So normally I would say probably no, but I want to say I remember reading last year that they renewed the trademarks on the franchise or something. Mm-hmm. Um, I also mm-hmm. read that that could just be kind of like standard business practice mm-hmm. and to not like read into it too much. But with that said, there is still hope that, you know, if they wanted to re- to renew the IP or whatever, um, I'm not like super hopeful, I guess, but I get it's also not entirely zero. So there's a small, there's a small chance at least, I think. 
I mean, Nintendo, I think they're well aware of their fans, like what they want. And I'm sure they have people going on like all the social media platforms and online forums to see what people talk about. And if there's enough chatter about it, I think, you know, they would take a stab at it and, you know, look into like maybe doing a remaster or remake, whatever you want to call it. And, uh, or just a whole new, just game in general though. Um, you know, there's been lots of new games coming out now, like that had got a remaster, like, you know, Chrono Cross that came out. Um, so I would say I would. I'm, I'm pointing towards yes is what I'm trying to get at. <laughs> I, I don't know how, how like soon, it. but eventually <laughs> they'll get to it. They have a big, big catalog, you know. Yeah. JRPGs kind of have been a little bit on the rise compared yes. to the last uh, decade, I guess. Because um, during the whole like PS3 generation, I feel like console JRPGs were definitely in a steep decline. Um, but the last few years or so, I feel like, you know, been a lot of new JRPGs being made. Um, like Evan was saying, they're starting to bring back a lot of old ones through remasters and ports. Um, so there definitely has been more positive vibes for the JRPG community all around. So, you know, it would be nice to kind of see this uh, trend keep up of kind of bringing back some older IPs. Neil and I always say this, if uh, Live Alive can come yeah. back after like 30 years or whatever Point that was. proven right there alone. Yeah. <laughs> that game had no, no presence in, no. Like, in, like the, in like the USA, you know. Or Zero. Like obviously like the diehard JRPG fans knew, knew yeah. about it, but the average fan like definitely not. Yeah, that one, the, just a, a mystery. So yeah. I remember when Neil and I saw that in Nintendo Direct, we're like, okay, anything's possible now. Like, we're... Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> never say never, like, like, like the Goonies. Never say never. <laughs> never say never. Yeah, just about anything. Like, you could pretty much give the old games to, like, a smaller development team to remaster it, put it on Switch, and then maybe give a slightly bigger team the keys and make a, a third one. Get the game out into areas of the world that never saw Baton Kaitos back in the 2000s, like all the European countries that have never seen it uh like, like you guys said like rpgs jrpgs are huge now nintendo on every one of their directs they have something to say about fire emblem or xenoblade or or something else there's a xenogears being remade yeah. there's a final fantasy game being ported up like these types of older rpgs they have definitely have a home on current gen hardware and baton kaitos would look beautiful on switch on that on like an oled screen or on an hd like it would just look so good so yeah, I, I think I think with that uh, copyright renewal that they did, it usually is for business purposes. They're gonna probably put bits and bobs of it into um, into Smash Bros or something at some point. But let's hope that uh, we do see a sequel at some point. But uh, fingers crossed. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Uh, well, guys, it's been amazing having both of you on today to talk about a little bit of Baton Kaitos, and uh, we're going to let you guys have this time to uh, basically talk and pitch about uh, your channel and whatever else you guys are working on. Um, well, yeah, our channel's called Gaming Productions. Uh, we focus on a lot of JRPG content from single game retrospectives of a lot of classic RPGs from like the you know PS PS1 era. Um, to general list videos, to um, kind of more obscure topics. We have videos over companies like Squaresoft and Atlas and Enix, where where we like chronicle their entire catalog from the from the nineties. Um, so kind of just a lot of topics focusing on JRPGs and the companies that uh, make them. Yeah, I watched your guys' uh, Enix, uh, Enix in the 90s video, and that was fantastic. I really enjoyed Thank that. You. Well, thank you. Hour long. It was a lot. <laughs> yeah. Oh, man. It was good to finally get it out when, yeah. when all was said and done. Oh, yeah, some late nights and just yeah, long hours, but it was all worth it, you know. 
Hey, we uh, we understand more than most, I would say, with uh, <laughs> doing the entire GameCube library, and uh, we're getting pretty close now to the end. That's why we're talking about these Bat and Kaidos games, uh, which were near the end of the GameCube's life. So uh, definitely keep doing it, guys. I love your videos. We really appreciate it. And uh, yeah, we uh, hope to have you guys on again real soon. Yeah, definitely. Thanks for having us on, guys. Yeah, it's been fun. Right, sweet. Talk to you again soon. Absolutely. Until next time. Bye. What nice young men. What nice young men. Thank you very much, Corbin and Evan from Gaming Productions. Again, like they said, great channel on uh, their, on YouTube uh, at Gaming Productions. You can also find them on Instagram uh, where they post their videos and, you know, thumbnails like we do as well for our podcast. But yeah, always good to talk about people who know a way more amount than we do about JRPGs. Yeah, they're very knowledgeable about RPGs, JRPGs specifically. I like their YouTube channel quite a bit. I actually happened to uh, stumble across it in researching for this podcast. And it's funny, Mike, you told me, yeah, we got the guys from uh, Productions coming on. And I went over and was like, I think I've heard of these guys before. And then I jumped over to their channel and I was already like halfway through a video. And I was like, oh, yeah, sweet. Uh, (laughs) So that's really funny, like how paths just keep crossing with us and other uh, YouTubers and podcasters and whoever else is out there uh, on the uh, on the social medias. It was a lot of fun to talk about uh, the games with them, and it's neat to meet people like them and like Zaffer, who, who picked up these games back in the day, back in 04 and 06, when JRPGs were not quite mainstream yet, even though we did have some successful ones like Final Fantasy VII. It was not as big as it was now, or is now. I'll stand by that. Like Mid-2000s were not like they are in the early 2020s. That's for sure. And it was really neat to look back on 2006, specifically the end of the GameCube generation, uh, with um, what games came out September 2006, the same month that Bat and Kaito's Origins came out. And IGN actually named uh, Origins their game of the month in uh, September of 06. Mike, would you like to know what other games came out that month? Yeah, I want to I wanna see how good uh, their ranking was here. Okay, so we have LEGO Star Wars 2, the original trilogy. Okay. Yeah. Bratz Forever Diamonds with a Z. Yeah. yeah Open Season, which we'll be covering soon. Baton Kaitos Origins. The Grim Adventure of Billy and Mandy, which we've talked about recently. Mm-hmm. And then Naruto Clash of the Ninja 2 was the final game. So we had six games released in September of 06 on the GameCube. Wow. Okay. Uh, that's not that bad. <laughs> Just I mean, not, it's, not, it's not, not a lot. lot. <laughs> <laughs> well, September 06, like, uh, actually, here's a real question, Neil. Mm. Which one of these, uh, may, I can do some very quick research on this. Uh, sure. I think all of these went to the Wii, other than um, other than Bat and Kaitos. Except, uh, yeah, Bat and Kaitos. I don't know about Bratz Forever Diamonds. That's the only one I'm not sure about. But Open oh. Season, Lego Star Wars 2, Grim Adventures, for sure. Naruto, pretty sure that was also a Wii game. Can't remember now, but while you're looking yeah, that up, Naruto I just wanted to... Wii game. Oh, was a Wii game. Okay, so you're right. I think Bat and Kaitos might have been the only and game. Bratz, exclu- uh was not Wii. It was uh, DS, though. It got it at least got a DS mm. release. So Okay, I'll take it. Yeah, better, better than it, Bat and Kaitos with nothing. <laughs> but just to put it into comparison, which I think is kind of cool, in September of 2022, which is basically five years into the Switch's life cycle, which is, five, mm. which is where we were in the GameCube's life cycle when Origins came out, we had 90 games released on Switch. Yeah, I mean, different times for sure, but (laughs) very different times. It's almost to an annoying degree, though, like how many games are released and the clip that they're released at. I I do kind of miss the time when we had six games a month 
and you could play one game for a little bit of time and just enjoy it for a while. But gone are those days. Mike, before we move on to our closing comments, I know that you have a thousand and one video games you must play before you die. But before you read those pages, I just want to read the back of the cases for Baton Kaitos and Baton Kaitos Origins. And then we will move on. What do you say? Yeah, let's do some reading, Neil. That's what everyone's here for. Yeah, everyone wants to hear us read. This is basically an audiobook. It's slowly becoming. <laughs> <laughs> it's possibly the most beautiful GameCube title ever made, said Nintendo Power. The world of Baton Kaitos exists in an era where land floats in the sky and the once vast oceans are mere legend. With your help, Callus and Zella must struggle to reveal the mystery of the lost ocean and destroy the corruption that threatens their world. Mike, I long for a world where the oceans are just legend. So do I, Neil. I also have to point out, uh, this is a correction, uh, even though we haven't done this episode yet, but uh, correction to you. Uh, you called it a uh, Lost Oceana uh, by accident when you uh, first introduced the game. So it's not Baton Kaito's Lost Oceana. It's just Lost Ocean. Oh, Lost Ocean. Well, sorry about that. <laughs> That's okay. It's, it's too long of a title. I think we can all agree on that. But moving on to Baton Kaito's Origins, which is a title that I can pronounce. <laughs> a hero will fly again. Discover the beginnings of the Baton Kaito's universe in this prequel to the award-winning Nintendo GameCube RPG. Did it win awards? All right. With the Emperor <laughs> sure. assassinated and legendary monsters threatening every city, the world lies on the edge of ruin. Only a young spiriter named Saggy and his two brave companions can stop a terrifying new evil from consuming everything they hold dear. The evil's really got to stop consuming things because it's just constant. Yeah. It's a consumer market for those uh, for those <laughs> evildoers. I don't know what it is. They're always looking to consume something. They can't keep their mouths shut, you know? They just can't, which is really unfortunate. But Neil, let's let's yeah. rewind a little bit. We keep rewinding today. Uh, let's but let's rewind once again. We're back to July two thousand four. We were in September two thousand six. Back to July two thousand four. Let's talk about Tales of Symphonia once again. I have a thousand one video games you must play before you die in my hands, and of course, Tales of Symphonia is in this book. Uh, so we'll read this little uh, excerpt here, and then we'll talk about the future of Tales. Okay, sounds good. Namco's series of Tales video games, despite being hugely successful in Japan, has never really matched the popularity achieved by the RPGs of Square and Konami. Not only is this a great shame, but also ironic since they feature some of the most accessible mechanics of any RPG in Japan. Tales of Symphonia, originally released on Nintendo's GameCube, is perhaps the most explicit demonstration of this long-standing franchise trait. In addition to leveling, titles can be earned from meeting certain conditions in battle to provide relevant stat boosts. These titles are far from permanent, though, and must be maintained by consistently performing well. Plot development is similarly present with exponential skits occurring uh, during travel or in the many towns and cities. The choices made here will have a subtle effect on the overall story arc. All of this is presented in a whimsically rustic, cel-shaded style that suits the tone perfectly. Indeed, the overall package may just be enough to convert even the biggest JRPG skeptic. That's you, Neil. Now, I am the biggest JRPG skeptic. That's <laughs> that's correct. Uh, I don't want to be converted, though. So I will I will I'll leave it to Zaffer uh, trying to convince me to play this game for the rest of my life. But yeah, the uh, Thousand and One video games are one of our most favorite books, our beloved Bible of, uh, of the gaming <laughs> right, community. Right. And Baton Kaitos not featured in that book, eh, Mike? Not that I could find, Neil, but uh, I thought it might have been, but... Uh, uh, so, too. Yeah, well, you know, there's it's okay, because uh, we have Microsoft Flight Simulator 10. Yeah, oh, okay, so just put away Baton Kaitos and play that Flight Simulator game. Great. 
But anyways, Mike, let's move on to our uh, classic closing comments here before we end the episode. Are you searching or do you recommend picking up any of the three games that we talked about today between the Tales series and the Bat and Kaitos games on GameCube? I mean, they're honestly all quite good games. Uh, a, a, a rare episode where we really have three very strong games uh, to to contend with each other here. And I think you really can't go wrong with any of them. Of course, Baton Kaitos Origins being at $200 is quite pricey, considering it's definitely the weakest of the three. Um, mm-hmm. Tails, I think, is still probably the the maybe the most successful and the best game on, uh, on the system in terms of an RPG. And the fact that you can get it for quite cheap, you know, what would you say, Neil, $35? Like, that's yeah. like, that's a steal. Absolutely a huge steal. And I think that's definitely one I would recommend. And I'd probably also recommend uh, Batten Kaitos, the original one, because that game is just so unique. I've never, ever seen anything like it in terms of those pre-rendered backgrounds. It's just so beautiful. The levels are so different. It is a really long game. I do understand that. Uh, And I often don't have time to complete even the smallest games <laughs> let alone a 60 hour one but i really really want to actually play this game in full one day i think i would really enjoy it uh immensely uh the voice acting like we said is definitely a big con and it kind of turns me off the fact that i can just turn the voice acting off though is very helpful because uh, i did that immediately but uh yeah i think Batten Takedos and tails are both great picks if you want to pick them up I think all three of the games that we talked about today, objectively and subjectively, I suppose, are good games. Like, I can't yeah. I can't say that you're going to pick up any of these three games and be, you might be disappointed because the game is not for you. But I can look at this from a critical standpoint and say that these are solid games, well put together games. Voice acting, hit and miss, depending on what you're playing. We actually didn't say that in Batten Kaitos Origins. The voice acting was vastly improved over the first one. It sounds a bit more like a current gen JRPG, so they definitely improved on that in the second one. But for a $200 price tag, I don't think that that's worth better voice acting, personally. Um, so any of these three games are definitely worth picking up if you can find them at decent prices. Uh, Tales of Symphonia being the most affordable of the three. And then if you can find uh, Kaito's uh, Tales of the Lost Ocean or Origins at a decent price, I think they're a cool thing to own in the collection. They look great on the shelf, beautiful box art. They might be fun to play for a little bit but unfortunately it's a very you either love it or you hate it type of game to play so i'm actually in the camp of i kind of am interested in these card battling video games in general i think that it'd be kind of cool to play one at some point i've never really jumped into one except for perhaps a Yu-Gi-Oh game on game boy advance that i played back in the day but that doesn't exactly count i would like to try this genre and jump into it maybe a an indie game or a game on switch or playstation 4 that i can find at a decent price um like Slay the Spire game that we talked about earlier yeah. in this episode. Yeah. Something like that. Pick that up, see if it's any good, and then check out some of the more current-gen games and maybe wait for a Bat and Kaitos reboot, uh, port, uh, remaster, whatever we end up getting on Switch someday. Uh, yeah, and that's kind of where I stand on the GameCube titles, but that leads us in pretty well. Mike, where do you see these series going forward? I, I know we have Tales games already on current-gen hardware, so it's pretty obvious those are going to probably continue as a once in a generation console generation once or twice a console generation series let's focus more on bat and kaitos we've talked a little bit about it already do you think that we'll get a, a sequel or a trilogy or anything at some point yeah that's a good question it, it was it was very interesting to me that they made origins a prequel rather than a direct sequel mm-hmm. uh, i think 
again, you you put it best with the bad timing. I think this game was doomed to fail, even if it was one of the greatest games ever made. It would just be have a cult following is the greatest RPG ever made, but still no yeah. one would buy it, and it I would know. be like a thousand dollars instead. So, uh, it just was really unfortunate for it. But um, it it would have been nice for it to be a direct sequel, just because the story is quite interesting in in the the first Baton Kaidos. So I would love them to make a third game in this series personally i i'm not sure if the remake route like uh corbin and everyone were talking about i'm not sure if how feasible that is i i know i can eat my words though for sure with like yeah like we said live alive exists so who knows but the card battling system in, in present day is a hard thing to pull off uh and it, it, they'd have to make some adjustments to the game and that's why I think they're better just making a new Baton Kaidos game and, and making it their own, uh, updating it. Like, that's why I think a lot of these Tales games, like specifically Tales of Symphonia, how Zaffir was saying, like, honestly, Tales of Symphonia should really just be remade, but with a lot of the new elements that are in the Tales series nowadays. Uh, almost like, I think of almost like Link's Awakening and the way that Link's Awakening was, was remade with a lot of familiar elements in the Zelda world yet making it into this completely different art style uh, and keeping the same kind of idea and feel that the original Link's Awakening had. I feel like you could do this with Baton Kaitos and just make a whole new game based off of it rather than just a simple remaster. Although I'm sure we probably have a better chance of just getting a simple remaster. I'd be okay with the, the simple remaster, honestly, and maybe with some uh, quality of life improvements. Like, yeah. we've talk, like we talked about already today, like the card battling RPG systems have been improved over the years. So I think yep. that adding things like leveling up and the ability to heal and save in certain points to not have to backtrack so much is another thing, too, that uh, the series was uh, criticized for as well. Like backtracking is just something that people will do or just won't. Like that's pretty much it. So yep. you need to kind of have something in between for players to be able to do so. Coming back to it, I think, is a good idea. I don't think a sequel right away is the right choice just because it's been what, 16 years since the last game that no one played. So it's been 18 <laughs> years since the last game that a few people played. So it, it does make sense yeah. to unfortunately remaster it, remake it, or just reboot it completely. Like, just yep. start again. Yep. Come out with Baton Kaitos, call it whatever you want on Switch, and have it be its own original thing. It doesn't have to be based on the characters from the original games because not a lot of people have that connection to them. It's not like with marth and roy and the fire emblem characters those characters had quite a bit more of a history whereas yeah like this is a cult cult classic gamecube game but i, I think you could probably come out swinging with a really good new game in the series and and those fans will carry over too or the new fans will just be much louder than they are and uh, you'll end up with a, another jrpg series to annoy me with in your <laughs> nintendo directs but i mean hey if, if that's what the market wants that's what yeah. the market gets uh, but we'll have to uh, we'll just have to wait and see yeah, the, like, the way that people connect is not through the characters for Baton Kaitos, it's the environments, right? True. It's like, that's, the kingdoms are True. what make the the games, and I think you're absolutely right with that fact, where, yeah, don't worry about the characters too much, don't worry about that kind of attachment, worry about remaking these uh, beautiful, beautiful environments and, and, and this atmosphere that you created with the first game. Like, yeah, like you said, bring that to Switch. I want to see that on an OLED screen, I want to see that in, in HD and 4K one, one day, too. Like, oh my god, that, that would be so, so cool to see the storybook uh, kingdom in in just beautiful HD because it's one of the coolest things I've ever seen in gaming. Yeah, it is. And that's a good point that the game is more tied to people are more tied towards the world rather than the characters. 
a lot of examples of that. But Mike, while we're sitting in our basements waiting for a Batten Kaitos remake to come to Switch and uh, give us the beautiful HD remaster of that storybook that you oh so loved, uh, <laughs> you love so dearly, why don't you let the listeners know what they can expect next week on episode 118 of the GameCube is Cool podcast? Oh, 118 already, Neil. Number 118 is all what about... What mean already? <laughs> <laughs> it's so fast. <laughs> it's our fourth racing episode. Of course, we've had Mario Kart Double Dash and Kirby Air Ride, but this is our fourth racing compilation episode. And for mm-hmm. this one, we're going to be talking about NASCAR games and a bunch of just weird, wacky, and random racing games that we couldn't fit anywhere else. So <laughs> uh, we're going to have a ton of fun doing that. Some of these NASCAR games are very, very good. So even if you don't have any affinity to NASCAR, which we don't, uh, you'll still have a lot of fun listening to us talk about them we'll have some guests on of course we'll have racing expert ali on again to talk about some of these other games and yeah i'm really excited to play some of these wacky games and uh and talk with some friends about them yeah i'm really excited nascar is an interesting genre of racing games been a part of video games since the uh, mid 80s so it's really cool to see how it's grown over the years and how it really not peaked but really did hit its kind of golden era and just some really classic games on the gamecube so it's going to be a lot of fun to have a couple of friends join in and uh and talk about those games. But until then, ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for listening to episode 117 of the GameCube is Cool podcast. New episode every Thursday on all the major podcast services. Leave us a rating and a review so we can make the show better. You can support the show by going to patreon.com forward slash the GameCube is Cool. All patrons get the show ad-free and a little early. Thank you so much to everyone over there. Head on over and check out our store on tpublic.com. Link to the store is in the episode description. Follow us on Instagram, Twitter, or Facebook, and join the weekly conversation on our Discord. Discord channel. Share us with your friends and family. Tell Lloyd, Mike says hi. Thank you so much for the support, and we will see you next week. See you later. Bye bye. GameCube. Over 600 games you've never heard of. GameCube. The product of what happens when you think inside the box. GameCube. Why is Lloyd spelt with two L's? Has anyone figured that out? No, it's like Aaron, like A-Aaron, the joke from the uh, Key and Peele skit. <laughs> Lloyd. Yeah, double letters at the beginning of a word can just stop. The English language sucks in general. Uh, yes, it does. That's, that's correct. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>